hello, this is Guillermo del Toro, and you're listening to Out Now Podcast. Hello. We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is... Abe, hi, how are you? Can I take your coats and your uh, luggage? <laughs> I, I was so curious what you were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just a simple bellhop here at this hotel. Nothing okay. wrong with it. Um, so, uh, normally we discuss new movies leak they have, or this is one of our special bonuses. This is one of our horror bonus episodes for 2022, our third in the uh, series that we're doing for this year's annual horror specials and we've got quite the treat uh for you all tonight this is gonna be fun we're gonna talk about stanley kubrick's the shining uh we're gonna get to why in a second here but first i'm gonna introduce my guests uh our sorry our guests uh we have from milk from the milky way blues all work and no play makes him a dull boy it's yancy burns hey gang good to be here hi yancy also joining also joining us from cal state fullerton he doesn't want to hurt us he's just going to bash our brains in it's professor (laughs) mike villain I'm trying to greet everybody telepathically, but is it is it working? Oh yeah, I can, yeah. You're asking me if I want any ice cream. I, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have mine set to Shin. Let me turn it to Shining. Okay, now we're thinking. <laughs> yeah. Now I think I'll transmit it over properly. There you go. Um, over. How are you both doing this evening? Good, as far as I can say. <laughs> Great, Mike. Good, don't as kill far us. as I can say. <laughs> okay. I'm not gonna hurt you, Abe. I'm just gonna, you know, give you a look. I we're we're the lights of your life are we (laughs) according to the script all right right. well yes we are going to talk about the shining this evening i think this is going to be a lot of fun i know we've we've talked about it before when we talked about dr sleep of course and just in general because we reference it a lot because it's the shining um (laughs) or the shinning um but now we're going to have a full in-depth conversation about pretty much all aspects of the film but let's get to why real quick mike do you want to you want to throw in why we're talking about the shining yes so i uh at the university i partner with a a a great horror convention in southern california called monster palooza uh they're generally regarded as one of the best ones out here and they kindly sponsor a giveaway contest for tickets uh, twice a year involving my students submitting their favorite horror titles on social media and you gentlemen are good enough to select a winning entry and feature it on the podcast so here we are actually i think you're dropping this episode on the opening day of monster palooza this month so oh there you go if yeah if any of your listeners are local um go check it out very awesome. cool yeah. yeah and yeah we've done this a few times at this point Maybe we talked about the fly we talked about the birds we talked about arachnophobia we covered all the mo- all the insects and the bugs and the, and the animals <laughs> <laughs> which we talked about <laughs> on these various ones i think we did a one or two more but yeah this t- this time we're talking about the shining uh we're gonna get all into it but yes mike happy to you know, always you know throw in our, our thoughts on which movie we should talk about and it's always fun to have a conversation with you about said movies for a lengthy period of time also I know I, I wanted to have Yancey here because he's a huge Kubrick fan. I'm sure he's a huge Shining fan since that falls under the umbrella of Kubrick. And I figured, why not have him on board as well? Why not? <laughs> It'd be hilarious. He's like, <laughs> I actually hate The Shining. I don't know why you invited me. <laughs> it's on my this least. It's the, one, it's the one I called not a Kubrick. Fan. Yeah, it's the one that I side with Stephen King. With. <laughs> right. You're we no. talking about uh, Memoirs of the Invisible Man this week. The one movie that's not a, a John Carpenter's uh, movie. That's what I feel about The Shining. That's what Yancey says. <laughs> 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 Uh, but I jest. We're going to talk about the shining now, so let's uh, let's let's get into it. Normally, we go over kind of 
general thoughts or whatever. I think we'll kind of get to that as we go, because this time mm-hmm. I thought I thought it'd be cool to kind of break down the film uh, from like pre-production to all the way up to like what its legacy is today. And yeah. so in doing that, let's talk about the book and the, the kind of what what attracted you know the various parties to this property. Um, this is a 1977 novel by Stephen King, of course. Uh, it dealt very specifically with his alcoholism. Have any of you read the uh, the book? I have I not have. yet. Who has? I've read it. Two um, guests. It's, yeah, it's the only reason I know what the explanation is for the man in the dog suit. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but uh, granted, I also read it probably 20 years ago, so I don't think my recollection is all that reliable. I read it about 10 years ago for the first time, I think. Are you are you guys fans of the book? Sure, I am. I remember instead of a hedge maze, the hotel has topiary. Topiary, animals. Is that yeah, the, yeah, right. That that come to life, which as I think Kubrick was wise to change that. See, I, I haven't read the book, but I have seen it. We'll talk about this later. The ABC miniseries version of, of The Shining, which is mm-hmm. much more. Regardless of quality, it's more book accurate. So I'm very aware of the changes just based off of knowing both of these two things, which I always find amusing because it's like, oh, yeah, you can really see why certain choices were made. Um, uh, but we'll, we'll we'll get back. We'll, we'll get back to all that later. Um, OK, so you so you two have read this. So we got the right guests on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes. They've, they've read this book. Um, so Keith, well, I have a quick question on that. Yeah, what inspired you guys to read the book? Was it just that uh, you guys were watching The Shining? You're like, oh, let me just pick it up because I've seen this movie, you know, a handful of times, and let me read this book. Or was it just more of um, I want to be a completist with my my king and uh, my my king book bibliography? I, I come in and out of uh, my engagement with his 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 stuff. I, I've always been a fan, but I'm not always keeping track of his new books. I think at that point I had finished reading his book uh, that he wrote called Revival. Mm-hmm. And I knew the next book was going to be this Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining. So I thought, oh, that's a good time for me to finally oh, okay. read the very acclaimed, what is it, his second, third novel? So that's what so early, I thought yeah. That happened. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh, and I think I just came across it. I felt, um, I think I was just reading a whole bunch of things. I wasn't, I wasn't on a King binge. I'm not actually that big a fan. Mm-hmm. And I haven't You're a read, uh, guy. Uh, no, maybe Barker, <laughs> maybe. Oh, okay. Barker, yeah. B- Barker, King Coons, if I were to rank it. But yeah, I, I think I just came across and I thought, well, I've seen the film uh, a few times. Maybe this will be kind of an interesting, because I knew that there were variations. And I think at that point I knew that uh, King disapproves of the adaptation. So I thought, well, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give it a look. Cool. Okay. Well. Uh, as far as the book's concerned and how Stanley Cooper got involved and feel free to like jump in on on any topic that I'm bringing up as I kind of go through some just just facts and things but like uh, Kubrick's coming off of Barry Lyndon um, which regardless of quality and artistic success not a huge hit compared to his previous movies some of his previous movies um, and so he wants to he wants to at this point make something that's like commercial but also still feels like a challenge to him so gives him some artistic uh, value to kind of go in on and he, he starts reading a whole bunch of horror books he's reading a lot of horror novels and the shining is the one that like really stands out to him and that's whatever happens to get him the rights that's what happens and there we go sammy cooper's decided to, to make the shining as his next uh next big project which is what what's barry linden like 75 yeah, yeah 75 yeah. okay so this comes out in 80 okay mm-hmm. so so yeah this is this is that and this is that period where he starts taking longer and longer breaks in between films right uh, 
so so he's uh, gonna make the shining though. Um, casting wise, what Jack Nicholson's always his first pick for uh, for for Jack. I, I'm assuming. Is that true? Do we know I, that? For I believe people? I believe that's the case. Like regardless of whatever studio might have wanted on him, I believe uh, Jack Nicholson's always like. Well, again, he wants a choice. hit. He, he wanted to make a big hit horror movie based on a big hit book, mm-hmm. and casting Jack Nicholson makes a lot of sense in 1980. For sure. What's Nicholson coming off of? Uh, Cuckoo's Nest and he's had a big seventies. Because um, he has, <laughs> I mean, he win, yeah, he wins an Oscar for Cuckoo's Nest, but he, I mean, he's all, I mean, he's got Chinatown. Chinatown. He's got Chinatown. Well, there's the okay. Fortune from I think that's like seventy seven. Might have made a few that no one's really seen. The Fortune with Warren Beatty, I think, is later seventies. Last mm-hmm. detail. Last detail. Yeah, that's seventy three. Yeah, that's before. Yeah, was that seventy three? So what's like seventy eight for Nicholson? Is it one of his uh-huh. Meryl Streep movies? <laughs> I always forget that he's in. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Did he take a few years off before this? Going South. That's the movie you made, right? He directed that. He directed oh, that. Okay. Um, oh, the Missouri Breaks. Missouri Breaks is in there. That's yeah. the one. That's the one in um in old where where um what's his yeah. name? Where Dark City guy uh, Rufus Sewell is oh, like. Oh yeah. What's, yeah. That, what's that movie with Jack Nicholson Missouri and Marlon Breaks. Brando? <laughs> <laughs> it's the Missouri Breaks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he's casting Jack Nicholson and Nixon's a star for sure at this time. Yeah. 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 Uh, he, he brings in uh, Shelly, uh, Shelly Duvall as well. Uh, also a star at this time. Yeah. She's building up. Yeah. Yeah. She's in Altman movies and whatnot. She's, you know, she's mm-hmm. uh, got plenty of her own credits in her own right. Daniel Lloyd's completely new. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the last thing he does. <laughs> I mean, he's not, he's <laughs> not an actor. Um, and then, of course, you got Sat- Scatman Crothers, who's a friend of Nicholson's. Nicholson, I believe, convinced oh. Scatman Crothers to be like, hey, why don't you jump on this movie? Uh, <laughs> He's like, well, what happens in it? It's like, you'll see. You'll we'll yeah. get into some stuff. It's just going to be a surprise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you've got a big role in it. <laughs> you got some other folks, of course. And Joe Turkle's here. He's in a number of Kubrick films. Uh, Kubrick mm-hmm. really likes Joe Turkle a lot. Um, Turkle will be, of course, he's in uh, Blade Runner, among other things. Um, Which is the... Uh reused footage in the beginning right yeah it's fitting yeah the yeah. the opening footage of the shining is is a uh, yeah the or no, sorry the end of the the end of blade runner is like b-roll footage from the yeah. opening of the shining right. yeah oh, Dr. Kell, i think is the most often repeated actor for kubrick he's, I believe- in, Killing, he's in paz of glory he's mm-hmm. in the shining yeah yeah I, I I have to think about it if there's anything. I saw him coming out of the Santa Monica Library one time. He looked just like Lloyd the bartender with little glasses, <laughs> moving very still. Interesting. He seems like he's thin as a rail. Also, yeah, looked 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 it. I assume he's passed. Oh, he just he just passed twenty twenty. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. he passed. He passed Recently, a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah he's, he's oh, ninety four. Wow. Good New York actor. Yeah, I think uh, St- Stephen McHattie has absorbed that Joe Turbo. That's a very uh, yeah, that's a great call. <laughs> yes, Stephen McHattie is a perfect analog for Joe Turkle. Um, let's see. You have giant sets for this movie. Uh, they use they use uh, like this this hotel in Oregon, I believe, is like one of the, like serves as the exteriors um, mm-hmm. for some shots. Uh, but you have and it's based around this one hotel in Yosemite. But like, there's these huge sound stages in London where they make all the all the sets for this film. Kubrick at this point is not leaving London because he hates flying, um, and so he's just like, "I'm staying here, and you're coming to me," because uh, that's yep. how he rolls. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so he has these giants. It's a bit that, that that's amazing to have like the confidence here in your like first and second ads that are filming all like the footage that's like getting the, the car shots on the on the highway and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, that I, for for a man as demanding as Kubrick, you would have to he did have he has to have a lot of faith in those 
and, and those crew members do right. to, they'll like right. shoot that stuff and he can't control it at all can you um, imagine like just like oh he gets the dailies like a three days later he's like i, I think you guys gotta redo this i think I, that's how spielberg and kubrick became friends because mm-hmm. spielberg was waiting to move in to shoot raiders yeah and the well, the well of the souls is the same set as the big room oh. with the little desk in it in in this oh. movie mm-hmm. the same again i had something in empire strikes back too because i think that was moving out before the shining came in but that's how spielberg and kubrick became buddies for life oh wow empire has a has fun connections with the shining for sure <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. since they're all made in tandem and whatnot um but yeah uh, so yeah, that's all the sets and stuff, and then it's a very long production. Uh, it's very it's, long. It's like nine months, maybe, like filming this thing. It's, it's I have read than, somewhere of like two hundred days. Like yeah, it's more know, than like, six months. I know that. So it's, yeah, it's got to be around like nine months. Old, they, the, is, yeah, they originally planned it for like what, like a seventeen week shoot or something like that. And it was just like we're gonna go over it by double. <laughs> and and how much of that is attributable not to sort of external factors like weather and things like that and more to just Kubrick being legendarily kind of difficult well it sounds it's down stages so I doubt weather was a factor at all yeah. right well, but you know sort, sort of things things out of control that kind of delay a production versus for sure yeah you know, I, Kubrick I, being Kubrick it very much seems like Kubrick being Kubrick right. uh, where... Kubrick and I think everyone at this point I mean taking Jack Nicholson off the market for nine months Later, taking Tom Cruise off the market for God, how long was that? Two years, three, three, two years. years yeah, I mean, this, you know, that was his. That was he, he got the results, so that's yeah. how he made his movies. You know, he's just very meticulous, right? That's the thing. I mean, we'll talk about this more as we get into it, but I mean, it's not like he's an unknown at this point. It's not like people are like, Oh, sure. I can't believe I had to do 100 takes for Stanley Kubrick on one yeah. scene. Like, it's like, This is it's what you signed up for because I know this Scatman Crothers had a terrible time, yeah. Like, we'll talk know. more about Shelley Duvall soon enough, yeah. but yeah, Scatman sure. Crothers didn't have a great time. Uh, to the point of he shot like one scene literally over a hundred times to the point of him like yeah. breaking down and being like, "What do you want from me?" <laughs> like, and yeah. He's, uh, but like, has always been this way as a filmmaker. He's always been. He a, became I want more everything I want. He be, as he got more. Okay. Increasingly, you know, the more respect yeah. he got, the more uh, creative control he got, which yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. the prestige goes along with it. Really, um, post two thousand one, he became the guy. Who, yeah, his films were events. Yeah, he would, yeah, you know. Because it's like, like Spartacus was a ridiculous production, but it, it was kind of a mix between him and studios at that point. Still, mm-hmm. right, right. Strange Love, because of the nature of that movie, it just wasn't didn't seem like a difficult production. Two thousand one, it's like he that's they're all like passion projects to some degree, but that's one where he's working like directly with Arthur C. Clarke, and he wants things very exact. But it's also not about like it's not you know there's not giant movie stars in two thousand one. Yeah. Uh, after that, then yeah, you have Barry Lyndon and this and Full Metal Jacket, where it's like yeah, it's they're big productions from big studios, and he's a big name, and yeah, well, he's, he's a big name for two thousand one. He's the big movie star in two thousand one. Yeah, he's the yeah. Strange <laughs> Love was huge. Good point. Yeah, but it's and not then, like you know David Fincher is just like let me learn from this guy. Like he clearly seems to be doing something right because people like working with Fincher, like and Fincher, and, yeah. and his movies don't seem to go like over long and over budget. It seems like he knows how to, con- despite doing all the takes yeah. he does. It seems to like well, to be honest. Generally, everybody that I remember talking to, actor wise, or not talking to, but hearing from, everybody seemed to like working with Kubrick too. He was not a remote or uh, lacking in warmth in person. He just was not into having a public persona. So what? When he was around, still alive, you never saw a picture of Kubrick. There was never an interview with Kubrick. But I, I think most of the people who worked with him liked him a lot. Um, yeah. Understood the process. That Obviously, Nicholson and he stayed friends forever. Mm-hmm. And Shelley Duvall said that she would do it again if, if she if she had to. Um, that's how rich an experience it was for her. 
Yeah, um, we'll, we'll get to this later too. But it, it is very like there is like a weird juxtaposition of how he treats Shelley Duvall versus Danny Lloyd, right? Um, like on set and for the making of this movie, and it's just very. It speaks to your point of, well, he can be very warm uh, and very considerate, and then also he's just like perhaps a madman on set. So I think he was just. I think he was just meticulous. I think he was a pretty warm guy. I'm sure there mm-hmm. were a lot of. He's a guy yeah, from the Bronx. He knows how to laugh. Yeah, he's a guy <laughs> drink a beer and hang out. Hey, hey pizza! This guy from the Bronx who sounds like a guy from the Bronx who, come on, Shelly, give me another take. You know, I'm like, I get it. All right. He's a meticulous director. He's Kubrick. He's earned the right. You're probably getting paid well. You just got to stay in England for a year. You know? Yeah. It's the- yes, he's going to shoot Vietnam in England. Yes, he's going to shoot New York in England. He doesn't leave England. A question for Yancey. I'm wondering, um, as Aaron said, you know, Spartacus is a large studio project. And uh, I, I believe Kirk Douglas was a producer on that, right? So yeah. he had a lot of say. In how he brought in Kubrick, that. yeah. Yeah, and, and that and, um, um, and then of course, Dr. Strangelove is sort of a very different thing. I'm wondering whether or not Shining is the first film uh, in which he's had that much control and that much clout over a major star. Like you've got some exceptions, like maybe James Mason and Lolita and things like that. But I'm wondering, is Shining, do you think, maybe the first time Kubrick is doing full full i can do what i want kubrick with I think Barry this caliber like i think Barry, well okay of that caliber well, ryan sure. o'neill was a pretty big star yeah barry linden but like jack Nicholson's um, like i guess one of the if not the biggest star at that point yeah, in yeah. time so right. i mean but now it's the you know in 1980 it's basically that means they started this in 70 77 or whatever so this is basically still the sort of new hollywood era so nicholson is is, is probably thinking the same thing that he wants to get involved in making they're going to make this mainstream movie that's going to be this major work of art, which I think is what Cooper had. That's why he had the stature he had, because mm-hmm. he made movies that were just great, greater than anyone else's movies. And and Nicholson yeah. respects that. He respects the he's like he loves movies. He loves the process. Yeah, he, like he, he very much loves directors and like being involved in that kind of creative level. That's why, like he was so cool to like Burton on the Batman set while Jack Palance was a dick to him. Like, he's just like, I, this, yeah, this little yeah. weird guy off the hair, he's the man. Like, you gotta, was like, I'm going to, yes, I'll play at Mars Attacks in multiple roles. Why not? Like, he's, he's stuck, he's stuck by his boy. <laughs> I like Jack heart. Nicholson's quote in that documentary where he says, everybody pretty much knows Stanley is the man, but I think that still underrates him. Mm. And, I, and I think I know what he means. I think that, 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 mm. that, that that's how much, that's how great he is. It, it, you know, we'll talk about it, but yeah, Nicholson, I, as I understand it, has a reputation for being a pretty generous actor as well, yeah. in terms of yeah. sort of being. I've heard stories about, like from Rob Reiner on A Few Good Men, things like that, in which he he doesn't have to go because your coverage is over, but he sticks around and yeah, and it does the thing. And so, for a production that is involved that involves so many takes, mm-hmm. to have someone there kind of keeping the energy level up, I think, is a pretty. I would imagine if you look at it from a behind the scenes perspective, it's pretty critical to what ends up being successful in the film, right? Is it's it's so anchored in Nicholson's performance. Well, it helps that I've heard about this as far as the shooting goes, as far as his takes were concerned, like because he's playing crazy, right? He can play that in different ways. And so when you're doing so many takes and you have someone like Nicholson that's enormously talented, he would be doing like a variety of different things whether or not it's him that's getting the coverage at that time, just to, you know, either <laughs> kind of go back against Shelley Duvall to get something out of her or to, you know, amuse Kubrick or what have you. Um, but yeah, he's, he's certainly like everyone put his all into, you know, making this movie be as, you know, as big as, as epic as it is, as far as horror movies go. 
uh okay so we okay so the, we talk about the production a bit let's let's talk let's talk about the actual movie now let's uh, let's get into into the film the shining and my first question i want to ask here is when did everyone see the shining for the first time Nancy, let me start with you when did you first see the shining you know i don't know when i first saw it i was aware of it i remember my dad seeing it in the theater i remember seeing bits and pieces of it on hbo over the years i probably didn't sit down to actually watch the whole thing until I really got into Kubrick, which would have been in my 20s at some point, probably. And uh, and that's when I would have seen it the first time. Um, so probably, you know, 22 or something. Mm-hmm. So when you're getting into movies and you're watching it in full for the first time, and being very cognizant of that fact, what what did you have? What were your like general thoughts on The Shining? I think probably for the for a long time, I underrated it and thought it was one of his clearly one of his weaker movies. Um, and then over the years, every time I've seen it, I've liked it more and more and sort of respected it more and more. And every time you can sit for two and a half hours and and, and watch this movie again, you can only respect it more and more. So I, I've, you know, as is the case with all the movies that were released of his after 2001, it seems like it just takes everyone a while to, to really come to terms with them because, you know, it's a lot of the shining is just sort of what might in another filmmaker's hands just be dead space and it's not because it's Kubrick and you know that he's just being so meticulous with what he's showing you so yeah you know it, it's hard to rank it for me because it, 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 it they all get better the, the more that I've seen them you know mm-hmm. well Mike how about you when did you do you know when you first saw The Shining I, I don't know when I first saw it but I suspect it was a video rental as a teenager Mm-hmm. um just because that, that's around the time i was devouring everything i could find in horror and it's also a bit more commercially available and so i, I don't know for a fact but I, I suspect this might be the first kubrick film i saw um before i would have sort of pegged it to his sensibilities as a director and so i've kind of every every rewatch i've done of the film um over time has been informed with sort of more kubrick films i've seen in between are you a fan of the film overall i've always thought this film was overrated uh and i've given it multiple <laughs> i've given it multiple chances as well but i think it might even be my least favorite kubrick film now i, I think that's probably just probably means i haven't reached yancy's sort of moment no. of clarity uh, no. quite yet but <laughs> i i just and you I really love feel... killer's kiss that much like that does that does it for you maybe of course it's just one of the no it's one of these films that uh, for which there's an expectation in the culture to agree it's a masterpiece and I think intellectually I can understand and recognize why the film is significant and the sort of the precision that Kubrick brings to it. I agree with the ANSI. I think this is meant to be understood through the lens of sort of an auteur study. Um, and it's significant and daring in a lot of ways I appreciate, but I just never personally found it all that engaging. Um, I will say that I did find it kind of interesting rewatching it for this through the perspective of COVID. Hmm, okay. Um and these sort of horrible stories of people during COVID who found themselves unable to escape abusive relationships because of the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe that's probably informed by what we've since learned about Shelley Duvall, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. But that's just kind of a kind of a different perspective I had with it this time around. Well, that I mean, it's it's hard to deny when you look at it through a modern lens that that kind of connection would occur, given the nature of the plot of this movie and what have you. But yeah, that's 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 neat. Uh, Abe, how about you? When, when do you know when you first saw The Shining? I can't remember like the year, but this movie would come on on like Saturday afternoons, uh, like on edited for TV 
type things. And I remember watching it there and I was like, what's the deal with this? And obviously I was like very young, but uh, doing, your, heavily... doing your Seinfeld bit. What's the deal? With this like, movie? What's, the deal? what's the deal with this lady <laughs> in the water? That's not supposed to come out until uh, 2012. <laughs> but no, there, there was a lot of editing for this. So I never really watched it in full till probably college. Right. So I watched it very young, heavily edited. And obviously things kind of stick with you, but uh, when you watch it in college, you're just like, oh, I can see what it, what what this is all about now. I I do have to agree that there's moments of this movie where I'm just like, okay, yeah, I, I this is this is a I can read into this a lot. And what I I think I enjoy the most from this is how I guess the extrapolation that people have put onto this. Uh, well, what's room point two thirty seven? I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that later uh, in terms of the documentary and also the the meaning, but you know what about all these um, uh, Native American art in the back or what have you? Um, and it, there's like a lot of really cool interpretations that I don't really delve into all the time, but whenever somebody brings it up, I'm always willing to listen. So like, does it have an, a profound effect on me? Probably not, uh, but I do enjoy it. And I do think that it has some really tense moments for sure. So I do enjoy the filmmaking of it. But, you know, when you read about how it was made and again, like we've talked about Shelley Duvall a lot already, but, you know, what she had to go through on this, um, you kind of just think to yourself like, yeah, uh, that's kind of a shame that some things haven't aged super well. But I do think that it is like a, a fun, like tense movie. And again, I enjoy seeing a lot of references um, throughout the history oh, of the film afterward. We kind of stopped. I don't think what happened to the show. I, that's, that's not... That's going a little too far to say what happened to Shelley Duvall on this. She's an actor. The performance is hysterical. It's a performance. She's a she's great in this movie. Um, whether her experience on the set was awful, whether he was a bullying director, she later said that she would do it again, which obviously means she didn't regret it. So I think us characterizing her as some sort of victim and as excuse to sort of dismiss this movie is, is a bridge too far for me. Like Shelley Duvall whatever her later issues it wasn't because stanley kubrick was was mean he doesn't have a record of being a mean guy but anybody having making you do 100 takes where you're swinging a knife around that's mm -hmm. a hard job and she had a hard job that those winters or whatever but i, I don't think she ever there's a there's a conflation that's occurred and this and uh, what we can have varying opinions on thing but in terms of like the general perception of this film it seems there be there seems to be a conflation of because she had a horrible experience filming The Shining, as far as kind of the emotional depths that she was pushed to for the sake yeah. of performance and the artistic process, what have you, it seems to be conflated with the idea that she had this mental breakdown. And I, I, I do find it hard to believe that this one movie caused an entire mental break of, of, of her person. And this given, is before fairy tale theater. She was just Popeye. Given, this, given the other things that she would go on to do. I mean, there's, I, 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 I don't deny the fact that yes, there's a lot of, there's behavior that wouldn't be, you know, it, it wouldn't happen today in the, in the same way as far as how far someone could be pushed or what have you without some kind of, you know, repercussion or yeah. what have you. But I, 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 do, I do think it, cause I, Abe, I'm not saying that you're saying this or what have you. I, I just, no, in man. terms of like the way people seem to look at it, they want to, they want to frame Stanley Kubrick as a horrible person because he directly caused the mental breakdown of Shelley Duvall. And I think that's, oh, well, that's a large, a giant over-exaggeration. Yeah. We're it's talking about it like it's a, like it's an accepted thing. Everybody, this is not fair to say that that she was abused or mistreated. That's just not fair. That that's his. That's us uh, packing history in and trying to oversimplify things. We don't see the twenty five years between 
the making of this movie and the, the period where she was having her mental break. It's not, it's, it, it, we're making easy connections that aren't really true connections. And for this movie to be tainted by that is really unfair to Shelley Duvall as an actor who has a very difficult time and gives a very good performance in this. And clearly whatever the experience was, look, it wasn't until that documentary started getting included with the Shining movie. I think it was after he died the doc the documentary his daughter made vivian well, made daughter, yeah. shining. it's like 30 minutes and in that you can see him hectoring her like come on shelly god damn it you got... and it just sounds like he's just pushing her to get the performance it doesn't sound like he's being some kind of weird inhuman domineering creep and i don't think that's what he was it's not hitchcock waiting like he's her not... performance with her life later and, and we're making easy connections and we're assuming things and it's not I don't think it's fair to Kubrick or to her or to the fact that she's working with Jack Nicholson. She's not working with Leatherface. Like, I mean, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, again, at, at the end of the day, essentially all that I'm saying is that she had a rough shoot, which I think yeah. everybody agrees with. So, well, you know, the connections can be made or they can be made. I do think that there, it sometimes it can be pushed to the limits. And, you know, it is unfortunate that, you know, I, Kubrick's daughter um, like has tape of her getting yelled at and chewed out on set. Uh, and it's just not great. I mean, yes, we know that this happens like on movie sets, like almost all the time. I mean, we just had Don't Worry Darling come out where there was like a ton of all this stuff that was happening. Right. Um, and there's uh, another layer when it's, you know, the one, basically the one female that's around it in front of camera versus, yeah. you know, very exact, very specific men that you know, well, are. Olivia Kubrick was right there with her camera. So. Exactly, yeah. I mean, but yeah. in terms of, I mean, you know, he's not yelling at her Kubrick, to shoot a better really, documentary. He's a very private guy. No, you totally, do like, yeah. you don't know the guy very well. It's very hard to yeah. pass judgment on Kubrick. He just yeah. seems it, like a, a Again, like tough guy. shoot. And again, I actually have some, some really uh, supportive things of her to say when we get to the, the casting parts. So, Mike, you were going to say something. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if um, you wanted to save more Duvall stuff for later, Aaron. But um, I, I mean, I, I don't like, want to. I don't want to keep dancing around it. I'm good. I'm glad we were just getting. Yeah, out yeah, now. yeah. I, my two cents. I mean, I feel like I come kind of in between you guys. On the one hand, uh, I do think uh, to to say you know uh, this was uh, workplace abuse on the set, and uh, that there does seem to be something overblown about that. But at the same time, I don't think it excuses um, mm -hmm. mistreating an employee on a set. Uh, this I have to admit, this is the first time I've rewatched the film since it became common knowledge that Shelley Duvall, um, you know, had a rough shoot, as uh, as Abe put it. And I have to say, watching her scenes, particularly the baseball bat scene, made me really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, being unable to discern how much of this was um, a performance and how much of this was just sort of the result of Kubrick hounding her uh, take after take, even if on some level that is the kind of feedback you need from a director, but uh, the 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 impression I came away with is not you know that the film can no longer be viewed as a undisputed classic because of what we know about Shelley Duvall. No, I don't think that's that's I think that's more of what Yancey is saying, right? To discard the whole film over this um, possibly exaggerated, hyperbolic interpretation of what Shelley mm -hmm. Duvall went through. I agree, but I think it it. it it was interesting to me because the greater focus on the film, I think, uh, is the relationship between Jack and Danny, between father and son. And that father-son dynam father dynamic is more spotlighted here and mom is just kind of along for the ride. And that's, hmm. of course, reinforced by where Dr. Sleep takes things. Um, she's not a character in that at all. And she's so in light, well, yeah. very, very briefly, right? Um, yeah. I, I literally, I just watched that and The Shining back to back. She's, she's in the good portion of the beginning of that movie. 
in the beginning, right? Oh. But then the kind of story follows Laura on without, without her. Uh, but but in, in any case, I, um, I feel like in light of all this, I mean, there is an opportunity here to like reframe the entire film as a story with her at the center of it. And I found mm -hmm. it kind of interesting to do that and watching yeah. it with that in mind, because it, it first of all, it opens up new avenues for thinking and examining the film's thematic priorities. And then, you know, not to mention opportunities for a bigger conversation on film sets about where the lines are between the make-believe and the workplace dynamic in involving actors in a general way, but also specific to the genre, right? Because horror films have always trafficked in misogyny and misogynistic um, uh, presentation. And so uh, I think without either condemning the film for quote unquote, what happened to Shelley Duvall or dismissing those allegations as overblown, I think there's just, you know, no need to dismiss the opportunity to just kind of reframe the film and use it as a, a template for thinking about these bigger issues. Well, I, I mean, I don't like that you're opening up to the world that Ryan Murphy's Wendy Netflix miniseries is gonna happen now by reframing it around her. Like, I don't, I don't look forward to that. Uh, we already had Ratchet, um, as far as Jack Nicholson movies. No, no, I, I don't. I don't. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't, I don't need a uh, Shelley Duvall. You, you've, you've already said. You've already summoned it. I'm sorry, Mike. But when, when it gets it's announced, in the universe now. when it gets announced, I'm blaming you. I'm gonna say Mike Dillon let me, did this. Wendy let me go. Coming let soon. me go. Shine. I'll send sh uh, Shine facts over to uh, Ryan Murphy right now and just destroy him. I will. I will propose this though, as well, because I, I, I large. I mean, I, I think we're all making around the same point is like a few degrees off in some instances maybe but i mean i I, th I do think when you when you talk about like workplace behavior and whatnot and phrase it as you know in technical terms as far as like employer employee goes i do think it's fair to have a certain expectation as far as the arts are concerned and something like a the film where different. there's a there's exactly. a there's a way different dynamic compared to just you know an office worker compared to a direct, right. you know, an, a, one, an artist, a director trying to push a performer to do a certain thing. And that requires a certain, again, I agree that that doesn't necessarily discount certain kinds of behavior. And none of us were there. None of us know any kind of like actual thing. Yeah, I know that she but, said she would do it again if she were asked. She did not regret the experience. As an adult woman, she said that. And I, of course, she said at the time that she didn't enjoy it. It's not new news. She didn't enjoy it. Everybody knows that everyone's a tough time on a Kubrick set, but she was asked and she said she would do it again. And, as an actor, it was an experience that was gratifying to her. Why do we discount that? Why are we trying to discount that? It's, it's important. Well, I don't think anyone's discounting that, but I think the, the yeah. reverse argument could be made, which is that just because someone ultimately came around to the idea that, you know what, I'm happy with the end result, and I would, if this is the result we can expect, I would do it again. On the inverse of that doesn't excuse um, uh, putting people through stuff that beyond a certain point. And I think Kubrick is not just in this film, but reportedly, but just in general, kind of known for just pushing and pushing and pushing beyond. Pushing, um, but not for being a dick. Things, right? And if you look at that documentary, he's not being a dick. He's just pushing. He's pushing. He's being a needler. He's, but he's not being a scary dick. He's being, he's, he's trying to get Shelly to do her job. And for whatever reason, they're having some dissonance. But I don't think there's even anything we know that he did. You know, as far as I know, he was always very professional. I, you know, I know we can I know we can go back and forth as far as basically speculating the version of what story makes the most sense here. It's and like I, 150 I, I, takes. Anybody would have a hard time with that. And I, that's I can respect that. But I, I want us to keep moving. I, 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 I you know, it, it's a fair debate, but it's only going to get us so far. Um and as, as far as where we were, I was on where. Yeah, <laughs> where, when did you see this, Aaron? <laughs> um, and what I know, did you think of it? I don't have an exact date and time, 
Um, but I do know that I saw it before I saw the Treehouse of Horror Five Shining episode. <laughs> um, so Shining episode, yeah, uh, because I because I, I got sued. because I knew every reference <laughs> when I when I actually saw that and I found it hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, as I've said many times this podcast, uh, I was very much raised on horror movies among other things with my mom. Um, she very much loved the. Sh- she was a huge Jack Nicholson fan. She very much loved The Shining. I assume there was some kind of videotape at some point that I probably just watched with it because I I have very distinct memories of being young and seeing the movie, mm-hmm. especially the music. Uh, and it's always locked me in. Like, I've always been a fan of The Shining, uh, even before I knew, like, the legacy of Kubrick and what have you. I, I've been I, I've I've just had a an affinity for this film because it just gets me in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I even now. It's in my top five Kubrick, but I do I think it's one of his several masterpieces. Um, I I really really enjoy it for a variety of reasons, and we can get more into that or what have you. But mm-hmm. but I, I do I do find the film to be I find it to be incredibly effective as far as sustaining a certain kind of mood. Um, there's levels of tension that if I'm watching it in the right setting, I still get freaked out by just because of the way the music works and the way it's shot um it's just it it has the proper effect on me and that's not even counting in all the various themes and what have you like Abe, you mentioned like the native american art or what have there's so many other things that are either direct uh things pushed on the viewer based off shining and uh, kubrick and the production design or things that have just been kind of taken away by various other uh uh critics and scholars and what have you that just look at this and hold over the way and yes that documentary room 237 obviously points out any number of things involving the shining uh so yeah I, i've always been a huge fan of it um it, it remains a favorite horror film of mine and a favorite film of mine in general do you revisit it every halloween not every halloween because it's a bit long um <laughs> but it's not one where i refuse to watch if it's like on or what have you and now it has this beautiful 4k <laughs> just it's tremendous uh to watch but even watching it this week just you know in a casual sense for the sake of i'm doing this episode mm-hmm. I, it's like it's a joy to put on like it you know if i had the time yes i probably would watch it every year just like i watched the evil dead trilogy or halloween every year during halloween during spooky uh-huh. season the, the one just the first year, halloween the one time of year we'll, the one time you were where we're allowed to watch horror movies um <laughs> uh, don't watch them in november you're gonna uh, get caught halloween is tricky because i said like well i watch one that means i gotta watch like some others but fortunately as brandon <laughs> peters and scott mendelson friends of the show have said it's it is a choose your own adventure type of franchise where you can right. go any number of paths as far as yeah. which halloween movies you want to watch um okay so <laughs> We, we, we've talked about our, our origins with the film. We've already kind of gotten to the performances a bit because we have this extended conversation about Shade of All. But there are obviously some iconic performances in this film. And if we want to, regardless of how, you know, how the, the filmmaking process would have you, let, let's talk about more about, about Duvall. We can move on to Nicholson and the others, of course. But mm-hmm. the thing that, the, the thing that hits as far as, I, I think, why the, um, there's so much response to Duvall's experiences because of how her performance is either overlooked or or distinctly ragged on when the movie yeah. was initially coming out. Like people mm-hmm. just did not respect what she was doing, uh, which that's its own form of misogyny right there. Because I don't like, if you actually watch this performance, it really is a brilliant performance. Uh, at least so so I say. But what do you guys do? Are you are you guys a fan of what Shelley Duvall's doing in this film? Yeah, I, I really it, I sort of agree with Mike uh, on like multiple rewatches um, and people have written about this, you know, with 2020 hindsight as well, where it's just like, she's a really good character in this movie. She's, she's uh, quite possibly like the hero of this movie. Yeah. 
And I really dug that interpretation. And then with that interpretation, I watched it again this past week as well. I was like, I do see it. You know, she's she's a really kind person in this movie. Uh, you know, she's a good, uh, she asked Jack, like, what's up? You know, you want to go hang out with our son? And here's some breakfast for you. I made it the way you like. Yeah. And, you know, hey, every now and again, I, when you're ready, I'd love to read what you write. And then later she goes in protective mode. You know, I really dig that she has a lot of, um, a lot of sides there in this movie. So I, I really do enjoy her character as this. And like what you said there, I, I went to go research some like the old like 1980s reviews and yeah, people were just really scathing um, in, in her performance as like just this purpose just screams a lot on the set or in the movie. Um, and then I think that she was up for a Razzie, which I think has been rescinded, <laughs> but Stupid. yeah, but I did, I did enjoy her performance. Like again, post uh, all this stuff. The, the idea of the Razzies, which I hate, uh, I hate. Re- rescinding I, yeah. rescinding awards is like, fuck off. <laughs> That's what I think of yeah, it's, it's, just, it's un- just the lowest of virtue signaling. You know? <laughs> it's, a, it's a stupid award to begin with. Right. But, to, but to speak praise of more, and I want to hear from you guys as well, but I, the, the thing that gets me about, about, uh, about Wendy's character is the fact that it's not easy to like stand up to Jack Nicholson, let alone crazy Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. And that right. ought, like, that gets me every single time when she's like terrified to her wits of what could happen, but she's still standing there off a bat. Like she's still like, she's still there not trying to, not wanting to put up with this guy who's like the most terrifying man you could ask for. And it's like, I'm not going to let this happen to me or my Mm -hmm. son. I, that's something I always really respect about that performance that it, it it makes sense that it's angled to be so, you know, hysterical but at the same time it's like it's not like she's not doing anything here like she's really mm-hmm. putting in something to deal with this insane scenario that they found themselves in but, she was uh, probably also someone that wasn't taken seriously at the time she, you know she came from those altman movies uh, three women in nashville where she plays la joan and she's right. great she was also pushed a little bit believe it or not as a sex symbol in like the mid-70s um and I think some people probably had there was some mis- misogynistic dismissal of her being some sort of daffy celebrity person, mm-hmm. uh, wannabe Los Angeles celebrity type. And, and then in this movie, in The Shining, she plays it. She's it's it's uncomfortable because she's so she does seem so sweet and so fragile. You don't want bad things to happen to her. You don't want bad things to happen to her. And it almost feels like she's already got PTSD when the movie starts from having lived with Jack Torrance for seven years, the whole backstory of him pulling her, pulling Danny's arm and breaking his arm accidentally. Like Shelly Duvall seems like she's already been gone through this like three or four times with him where he's yelling at her and swinging an ax. She seems like she's about to snap already from the very first moment, which is sort of, she sort of had that flaky persona to begin with. Um, in Three Women, for instance, she's very like flaky all over the place. She's brilliant, but she's very much a sort of type. Um, so I, I can see why she would be dismissed at the time because it's sort of uncomfortable. She's not some badass woman fighting back. She is this is like a butterfly and he's coming after her. She's swinging the knife back and forth and she's obviously broken down to her last, you know, whatever. She She's great. Like, she's great. I can't, I, I can't imagine like, Jane Fonda or somebody not that I don't love Jane Fonda but I'm trying to imagine any other actress here from the time it's hard to imagine someone because other big stars would have there'd be more authority in those performances where you wouldn't I don't think you necessarily believe it as much that she would be with this person to begin with just as a foil to Nicholson's Mm -hmm. over the topness her shrinking violet thing is very very effective you know Mm -hmm. 
Mike, yeah, how about you? Can I? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'll just kind of reiterate what I said earlier, which is that I think that there's no obligation to reframe the movie and look at it this way, but I think the movie opens up kind of an interesting uh, uh, reading strategy if you watch it, uh, as Abe uh, said as well, to kind of think of her as the the sort of emotional core of the movie, or to even look at or like watch this movie as with her as the main character, and it just becomes kind of interesting. And and I don't want to jump too far ahead. I, I suspect this is something you want to get into, but. Uh, based on Stephen King's own complaints mm-hmm. about the film adaptation because of the themes he wanted to uh, uh, foreground in his novel, and uh, including themes of like addiction and abuse. Mm-hmm. I think if you were to look at Shining as that type of story, then um, the Wendy character is much more critical to understanding those dynamics as well, right? And so I agree with the Yancey, like um, if you cast Nicholson as this sort of grinning, toothy, menacing character, then you do need her as a foil to be uh, frail in that way, right? And so, yeah, I, I, I can see where if people aren't, if people are just looking at it on the surface, mm-hmm. the performance is a little bit uh, kooky. But, you know, if you could d- dig just a little deeper, not even that deep, I think the, the, the performance has these layers and kind of tragic dynamics to it that are more interesting to me the more I think about it and rewatch this. Right. And, and Nicholson definitely oh, got his share of bad reviews here too, didn't he? For going presumably. Yeah, it's somewhere like like Pacino and Scarface, where it's like these are actors that have established personas and they're going very yeah. big with these performances where it doesn't necessarily make it bad, but in the eyes of a of certain critics, they're like, what's this guy doing that's new? He's just yelling a lot. Like it's Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Aaron, I think to your point too, I mean, if or uh, Yancey and Aaron, if you guys cast somebody that's you know a bit of a larger name, sometimes they're off screen like their power in hollywood kind of takes over the role so it's kind of a, a like it'd be hard to see anybody else because i agree with you that there has to be like this wilting flower aspect of it but again she's a very practical mom in this movie uh, i you know she thinks everything out there's really nice like subtle things that kubrick has her do like in scenes that we're going to talk about with some of the direction later but you know one of my favorite things about it is like she's basically saying like she she talks out her plan to the to the audience essentially she's like all right, well, I'm going to get in like the snowmobile and we're going to drive down with Danny. And you know what? If I have to leave Jack, I got to leave Jack. But here we are, you know, and yeah. I was like, this is actually really like Mike, your point of, of if you put her, if you see it from her point of view as a main character, I was like, this is actually a really strong person and somebody who has to really do get through a whole lot of this movie. And it's still a scary movie, you know, even as, as with her as like the main lead. Um, but it she actually does have quite a, a bit to to um what which we got like to to hold on to versus jack nicholson who's like going like a thousand miles per hour i will note that in the tv miniseries version rebecca de mornay plays wendy and she uh-huh. is the first build character and certainly has wow. more to do which i think oh, is very much by stephen king's uh-huh. design they didn't like wings <laughs> 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 I think I mean I'm, you know beyond the fact that her name is I think just more of a it has more star power behind Selling it power, in, 19, yeah. in 1997 whatever yeah then um, yeah but at this but I do yeah. also from what I and I haven't seen this in a while but I from what yeah. I recall they I mean given that it's more book accurate it does make it more of a a triumvirate as opposed sure. to a Jack Nicholson also these people yeah that rocks well, much of her is in it, the it, book it, either it, not too much it I rocks the cradle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She big hit with that. Good one. Yeah, yeah, you know, actually, I think that Nicholson, I mean, it's hard to dismiss such an iconic performance, but I I feel like it doesn't 
quite work in a way as a casting thing because I feel like and I again I think King uh, intuited this if the point was to have him be an everyman who just sort of succumbs to his insanity then I don't think this casting really works because Nicholson is so immediately menacing right right and I, mm-hmm. I wonder if it maybe there's an argument to be made that it hurts the film a bit because there's um, because he's menacing from the beginning and which makes it not as impactful when he actually becomes a figure of danger, right? Well, let's break he that transforms down. transforms really pre- pretty quickly. I want to break that well, down because the, the, way, the way we're introduced to Jack, we already know that he has this problem with alcohol and that he's I, he's inadvertently, he hurt Danny in the past. I mean, should we not know? And never mind the fact that we're walking into Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, the ultimate horror experience or whatever the tagline says. Should we not already be worried about this guy before he gets the job, regardless of it being Jack Nicholson? It's hard for well, me to the book say. Is internalized, I believe. I believe yeah. a lot of the book is happening inside Jack Torrance's head. He's much more of a regular guy, sort of a Stephen King type guy, mm-hmm. dealing with all these. There's a whole running thing in the book with a wasp's nest on the roof of the hotel. That he's but if we're to- but if we're told all these things to begin with about this guy, shouldn't we already be aware? That we're, we're in the book, the tension is that oh, we're, we're we as we're reading his first person narrative, he's going crazier and crazier, and now he's going to hurt the kids. Mm-hmm. And obviously Kubrick's vision of it, it's Jack Nicholson and he already seems like he's, if not up to something, but that's in the book too, that he broke his arm in the past. That's so. what I'm sure. saying. Like we're, 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 in, we know that he's already a threat in varying ways before. But he's much more. Well, yeah. He's, he's, I can, he's I can sweet. understand there being a difference in physically showing you that just by nature of having yeah, yeah. Jack Nicholson versus showing you Stephen Weber. Um, I mean, well, hey, I think, they're I, both they're both strong guys. I think I don't know if this is in the Stephen Weber version, but I, what I seem to remember is that he has this past incident when he flew into a drunken rage and accidentally broke Danny's arm. But also, he he's looking for in the book anyway. He's looking for a new job because he got fired from his teaching gig for like mm-hmm. assaulting a student or something like right. that. Right, so right. the, the, these kind of rage issues are much more unambiguous in the book in this one i think this comes back to shelly duvall because she has she's the one who's giving the expositions like oh you uh-huh. know it was an accident and this thing just happened sure i feel like w- without really clear indications that jack might be dangerous it's it's not clear as to whether or not well i mean but it the, sounds like a genuine but, accident like maybe he is really and right, and and right. you know he he responds to that accident by saying you know what i'm done drinking i need to make it up to you guys right. like there is a good father but in, that's in but that's that foreshadowed well yeah there is but that's foreshadowed the book there is, very but, much alcohol right, but I'm, but, the bad right, but, yeah exactly but i'm saying that um the casting of nicholson kind of brings this pall of, of menace that it yeah. is that it's the casting that's the foreshadowing not it, the not the story piece. that's entirely that's entirely time. fair I guess it just it's never bothering me because I, it's not like I'm walking into a movie being like I wonder what kind of movie this is going to be it's like I know it's <laughs> the shining like I know I know what's going to go in a certain direction I don't feel I don't feel like it being tipped off that we're going to get horror and things going on oh because I Nicholson's think you're here. selling it short I, I don't think it's what he's saying Aaron I think it's that in Stephen King's book, it's quite literally a story about a haunted hotel that has mm-hmm. the fortune of having this drunken handyman who goes crazy. And it's literally a haunted hotel. In this movie, it's not literally anything. It's just how much of this is in everyone's head? What's going on? It seems like a haunted hotel, but Kubrick is never going to come on and say this is a haunted hotel. Well, I mean, you're saying that, but like, is- the, like, look at the music that the movie opens up with. I don't think it's trying to hide the fact that there might be something strange yes, going but on. What he's, he's, but he's already saying what is 
the music at the beginning is implying, well, what is strange? This little tiny vehicle in this giant mm -hmm. wooded like world. What is so strange? Is it just the such? I think the big joke for Kubrick in the movie is the idea of this little family living in this giant house, like the nuclear family who are supposed to want to sure. go off and be together, still can't get along in this enormous house. And I don't think that's what's going on for Kubrick for for Stephen King at all. For Stephen King at all, it really is personal addiction story meets what if at that same time I went to work at a haunted hotel. Yeah, I, I agree. Different I, the, the, the differences I agree with, and I think the nature of that comes down to one, you have a novel that has so much time to expand on these things in ways that, yes, will table some of the conversation regarding who these characters are and what they're capable of versus a movie that needs to get even a long movie like this still needs to get to the point a lot quicker and doesn't have the time to and we can't do the internal ways. Right yeah what, what i find fascinating about the uh jack character played by jack nicholson which i find it i have all of a sudden found it funny that jack is played by jack and danny is played by danny uh -huh. but then mm -hmm. wendy is uh, played by shelly but you know it, it could have been shelly right jack and shelly and danny all just first names but what I find fascinating about the character is, yes, there is like this menace that I think automatically you're just there. Like even in the car when he's like, you should have eaten your breakfast, Danny. Uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of a mean thing to say, but yeah, well, he's very I like condescending. About... I like what he, what he says. Yeah. Uh, Do you hear that? He learned about it on the television. On like, the television, just... <laughs> yeah. Um, but Which what I, what like I... him dismissing like culture in general. When it's like, good thing <laughs> I'm going to a, a, a house or a hotel in the middle of nowhere where I don't have to deal with yeah. anything else except me. Like, right. But... But what I what I do find more interesting about the character of Jack is what happens later, like not even like uh, like full crazy mode, but just him being like, you know, do you want me to go back to shoveling driveways and washing cars? Like this guy's just a loser, and yeah. he's like he's trying to like make it up to his family because you know he's got a family now and he's got to try and like settle down, but he's kind of like just been bad at every job, and that's where you're just like, oh, you know, like yes, he's a menace, but also like. He's kind of quote unquote had a hard life, but you know, I see the involvement of just him being like, I really want to make something of myself. I could really make this book, but I also like have failed at everything I've ever done. And I kind of don't want to fail at this, even though I'm kind of just writing this crazy book. And that's what makes it uh I think ultimately like the more quote unquote menacing. It's just like, oh, you know, he's never really been good at anything. Like, even when he interviews for the job, I like how the the hotel manager is just like clearly saying, like, a few years ago, this family killed or this guy killed his whole family. And he's like, okay, well, my wife loves scary stories. Like, yeah, that's not a really like normal reaction to this. Yeah. Can I say also it, yeah. from my world of things, there, there have been academic sort of articles written and studies done about how this is, uh, you know, one interpretation of the film is that it's kind of about the crisis in American masculinity. Uh -huh. Yeah. Interesting. Um, with, yeah. So that, that's a line of argument that's, that's out there as well. Although I do think, I mean, not to keep bringing it back to Shelley Duvall, but this original uh, moment in which she says, oh, no, he, you know, Jack, just we all go a little crazy sometimes, you know, <laughs> um, it, it's, you know, if you have if you interpret Jack as more of an everyman type guy whose demons get the better of him because they're provoked by the this sort of strange space of the hotel, then you can kind of view that scene. And Shelley is just sort of defensive. Jack is sort of no underneath it all. He's just a good guy who had a bad day. But if you view Jack as an inherently menacing figure from even before the hotel gets a hold of him, then that scene gets completely rebranded mm -hmm. as just a woman who's just, a, this is a battered wife who's in denial, right? It, it completely rebrands the kind of, the, the nature of that performance, I feel like. Yeah. Sure, yeah. We, we've talked kind of around the, the positioning of having Jack Nicholson in this film. Do you guys, uh, Mike, it sounds like you 
Well, do you like the like? Do you like what he's doing in the film, given what's required of him here? Oh, is that to me? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's a very watchable performance. Um, it makes me want to see what some of the other takes were, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I have much to add to it. It's just it's it's Fair it's enough. fun. It's fun to watch. It it um, it, it's it's. It's the reason why I'm framing sort of, no, let's take a look at Wendy's character a little more closely is because Jack Nicholson's character is so big and, and kind of uh, overwhelms the film. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I don't want to keep going round robin if we're going to have the same thoughts on Jack Nicholson. I, I don't feel like there's much to dispute as far as like what yeah. he's bringing to something like this. Is that fair to say? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, my only my only comment or add on is that like, he's got such great, like big facial expressions it really adds to the movie. Right. So whether it's just like him looking puzzled as to like who's paying for my drink or even just uh <laughs> really just uh telling wendy that she is the light of his life and uh threatening her but has a giant smile on his face very it's very effective i, I have a question very... actually okay oh so yeah, I'm, I'm about to change directions a bit so yancy go ahead i'll just quickly say i think he is he i think the performance is is it, maybe it's not one of his great screen performances. He stays on target and he's effective, but I think it presages very, very much his performance in Batman, which mm-hmm. I have to admit I've never liked that much. I think in Batman he is just coasting on Nicholsonness, which is something he's starting to sort of do in this. That would be my my take. Um, and my question has more to do with uh, as a story element, but mm-hmm. I think it's kind of connected to how menacing are we supposed to understand Jack to be before the things start getting weird in the hotel, which is something I'm just a little unclear about. Are we meant to believe that Danny is the one who awakens the ghosts, right? Because presumably the hotel has had a groundkeeper every winter and with the obvious one exception in the past um, with Mr. Grady and the twins, the winters come and go without incident. And so What's different about this time is not that Jack has unexamined rage issues. It's that Danny's shine powers attract the attention of the ghosts. Is that what we're meant to understand? Just as a point of clarification? I, I, I think it's a combination. To, and this is all, I think, more implications and inferences as opposed to what's said in the film. But I do think it's a combination of things. I think it's a mix of the fact that, yes, Danny attracts things because of his gifts um, well, I also think it's a matter of how sensitive somebody is to being affected in the way that someone like Jack Torrance is. I think the fact that he has this, you know, he's going through this sobriety, he has these other issues, something about that, I think, within him makes him more sensitive to, I mean, the, the house itself is haunted. I think that's the thing to say as well. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's the, like, it's, the house has its own t- sort of power. And I think it's just a matter of who are the people that are in said house and what, what they respond to that you know that power kind of goes after them in whatever way so i i I, for me i think it's a mix of things i think it's a mix of danny unleashes things to an extent but also jack's his sense of self i think invites things to happen as well jack is is weak he's weak-minded that's a great way to put it and that's why the ghosts are able to get to him i think it's important to remember and i have to remind myself too that the movie is called the shining the book is called the shining it doesn't mm-hmm. refer to jack's character at all it refers to danny's character that's a great point but i think mike's point is correct i think it's a two-pronged thing you have a man who's about to have a breakdown anyway and then his son is sensitive for whatever reason to and 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 and, and attracts these yeah, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think I do think it's it's, it's a good I, question. I, I yeah. yeah, and Doctor Sleep obviously 
illuminates that a little bit, I think, um, and moves him into being the sort of main character of the the over overarching story. But yeah, I'd argue Doctor Sleep kind of answers some of that a little bit. But it, it, yeah. sorry, I don't want to frame it around with that sequel. Book question: Did Yancey and Mike? Did you guys both read Doctor Sleep as well? No. Okay. No, just the film. Okay. I read. I started Doctor Sleep, and I have to admit, I was because the the one I read before um, Revival was also a, a, the first person narrative of someone overcoming addiction. Mm-hmm. I got a little tired of Danny's character in the first couple hundred pages of Doctor Sleep, the book, and I never finished it because I was like, a, right. another story where Stephen King is the character is overcoming this intense addiction to something. And so you, you got tired and dozed off from Doctor Sleep. Got it. <laughs> Did its job. One thing that um, I caught myself wondering in terms of thinking about the relationship between uh, Danny and Jack, and of course, Jack is the person whose madness we're chronicling um, in, in, the, in both book and film. But then, of course, as you like completely rightly mentioned, right, it's about shining and that, that's a power mm-hmm. that Danny has. So I've always wondered um, if, if there's kind of a subtle reference to cultural fears at the time that would have been in the air about children watching too much TV and what it's doing to their development. I mean, that's a common enough thing, right? The generation mm-hmm. before this film, it would have been the negative effects of rock and roll. And mm-hmm. now it's you know video games and social media. But the fact that Danny is always watching TV and mm-hmm. references some, I would say like age inappropriate things. There's a really weird conversation about cannibalism, right? That's the scene where he's like, yep, yeah. he learned it on the TV. Oh, Always yeah. seemed, I don't think that's something Kubrick necessarily has an opinion on, but it does point to things that would have been topical at the time the film was made and it, it would make sense they would kind of creep into it. And so if we're talking about Jack and Danny, one thing we need to sort of acknowledge is that this is a generational difference, right? Mm. Between Jack, who's like type, type, type on, on a, you know, on an old piece of media where he's mm-hmm. writing a book, right? That's old media versus his kid who's kind of growing up in the age of uh, Saturday morning cartoons. I feel like that uh, difference uh, between them is is maybe partly um, highlighted or reinforced by a father-son dynamic in which like, you know, you've got one guy whose inability to handle psychic energy is, is truly breaking him down versus the other one who you know, we're going into Dr. Sleep here, but eventually learns how to control it and thrive off of it. That, 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 hmm. I find that kind of interesting. You, yeah. you mentioned like whether, you know, not uh, Kubrick is directly involved in like this kind of influence. I will note that this movie was co-written by the screenplay for the, the adaptation that happened between him and uh, Diane Johnson, who is a, more of a satirical novelist. It wouldn't surprise me if that's part of that collaboration as far as things to comment on as far as what's going on in society for a movie that's so closed off from the rest of society, the idea of incorporating things that directly feel impacted by what else is going on in the world in 1980 or the seventies, what have you. Mm -hmm. I I wonder if that plays a role as far as the kind of collaboration process. Cause when I think of Kubrick, I don't think of him as someone that's necessarily observing time in a way that needs to be referenced. He seems more like a guy that makes movies that are, you know, unstuck in time in their own way, regardless if it's a Vietnam yeah. War thing or Dr. Strange. I mean, you know, those movies that are directly dealing with the, you know, with whether it be the Cold War or Vietnam, but also mm-hmm. the themes, the characters would have, you don't necessarily seem informed by the now all the time. And obviously there's other movies that, you know, could take place whenever, eyes wide shut, sure. what have you. Can I talk about Danny? Or I was book? thinking this was just about the uh, moon landing being a hoax, but you know. <laughs> that's that's my general thesis on that's, all of this. Yeah. <laughs> that's where it gets fun people extrapolating. But Danny himself, I, you know, as a child actor, how old is he in this movie? Uh, five, yeah. six, seven, eight. Yeah, 
Somewhere around there. He's born, he's born in 72, so he has to be... So he's got to be like six or eight, seven. Six, yeah, six or yeah. this is filming, and his films for a while. So Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, he's really good in this movie. And I know that, uh, uh, you know, uh, this story has been that uh, Kubrick has said, like, hey, we're making a drama, and he wouldn't allow Danny to see this until right. he was much older. But I, I do enjoy Danny, like, you know, he, he has like a scene right away, right? So it's it's very much like, this is a really good child acting performance. And I don't, you know, Yancey, I guess, and Aaron, to your point, just like uh, Kubrick being able to pull these kinds of, of performances out of people. Good job. Cause there's some scenes where he has to like just do it all himself, where he's like, you know, he's, he's basically, he turns into Tony at one point and he's talking to, to Shelley Duvall. Um, or just like when we're, <laughs> we're following him along and he sees something in the hallway, you know, he's, he's very effective in what he's doing here as like a, a child actor. We never know how scared he is of his father, really. We never know whether right. he took that arm wrenching personally or whether he remembers it. He kind of treats his dad like he still loves him in the movie, at least. Because uh, I think cause that's I, his oh. innocence, right? He doesn't really know yeah. how to, beyond being like a frightened animal, he's not that. So, I mean, there's not really much else right. to go on beyond. Yeah, he does seem like he just wants to act like a normal kid. Like, that seems not like Tony, doesn't... though. Who is Tony? Tony doesn't. Yeah, there's the, there's that whole other thing as far as what he's doing in his alone time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but as far as like what he's you know just walking around the house with you know and his parents are around, he doesn't seem yeah. like he's doing anything necessarily out of the ordinary. Right. Yeah. Besides, I, what I he remember him with his being mom and pulling up his finger and saying, "Tony, like that's its own thing." <laughs> but... I think I think I remember him being a bit more precocious in the novel. Um, okay. I think he he intuits that something is wrong but he you know because he loves his father and he i think he understands that you know i i think we ought to probably leave this hotel there's something dangerous here yeah. but i at the same time i know that my dad needs this um yeah that's and and and, okay. and that and that you know the, the health of the marriage of for my parents may be hinging on this so he um bites his tongue or something like that i, I may be misremembering this a little bit but i think that's uh well that's uh, and that's he what is I... acting out of a place of love I remember that being key in the God, I hate referencing the stupid miniseries so much, but I do remember it being key <laughs> in the in that like if you're to tell me that the shining the book uh, is a is ultimately about a father and son like rec, you know fi finding some kind of finding something between them, I could believe that. This movie, I have more trouble doing that because I don't think it really constant like you have main you have like only one key scene beyond like the chasing and stuff, but you have only like one key emotional scene between. Between Jack you know, and Danny, you know, almost right? at opposite ends of the stage, and the yeah, whole movie for, exactly. So it's like it's I, there's no there's no central core to this as far as like that relationship between Danny and Jack is like really the thing that's going to make the difference here. I don't see that in this movie. Yeah, I think that's a flawed and movie. That it's just, that's not a, scene, mm -hmm. yeah, oh, the, yeah, the particular scene you're referencing too is like the only scene with a, a bit of tenderness between them. Mm -hmm. That's also far enough in the film that and it's far enough along in Jack's obvious sort of mental degradation that we doubt the sincerity of that scene uh, as well. Right. That's a bit like, I was wondering, I was wondering about that today when I was watching, because it's like, sh is, is this just like a, a random plea that's for the sake of himself? Or is this like him trying, trying his best to claw back towards a reality that he can, that makes a level of sense as opposed to what he's being, you know, where he's being dragged down to. I, I, I go back and mm -hmm. forth on that. Yeah, that ambiguity is interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the book he goes, even, yeah. Sorry, as far as far as the book goes, and based off what I see in the miniseries, it that does seem more of like a central element of the of of what the, what story Cooper or uh, King's trying to tell, right? That this kind of sure. the, these two people yeah. that 
have this issue and they need to work it out in some way, which really, which makes that ending very powerful. Um, I, I like the ending to this movie quite a bit, but I do think the, the book, the ending, the, the novel goes for, I, I find it's also, it's a really good ending to, to that story. That's not this movie. Sure. So it, it, it wouldn't yeah. make, it wouldn't make sense in this movie based on what they actually do there. But and and you, I guys like, are, you guys are, I was just, I, yeah, I was you just guys are mentioning real, a lot. Yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say real quick. I do like that. Dr. Sleep has the, the one thing I really like about Dr. Sleep is that it, it manages to thread the needle between the book and the movie. Cause they're so drastically different, but it finds ways right. to bring something that, is not in the movie at all and make it work in the film, which I thought to be impressive. Right. So yeah, the climax of Dr. Sleep is basically the original climax from the novel of The Shining, Mm -hmm. basically. And, you know, you guys have talked about the book here and the quote that King has with uh, one of the problems of the movie versus what he wrote is, quote, the movie has no heart. There's no center in the picture. I wrote the book as a tragedy. And if it was a tragedy, it was because all the people loved each other. Here, it seems like there's no tragedy because nothing's going to be lost, end quote, right? So exactly what you guys are saying. Like, there's definitely, like, a, uh, some sort of, like, connection there, but maybe it just doesn't fully come across because Kubrick just wanted to go a different way. I mean, I've also read that Kubrick wrote a screen, or King wrote a screenplay. Kubrick was like, thanks, I'll look into it. Yeah, he <laughs> threw like, that away. No, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I can definitely see where there is this emotional connection between the two danny and his father and you guys mentioned dr sleep so yeah i i can definitely see that connection i do think that there's still like some really good performances between the two and you know even some creep factor between the two i mean um you know i really dig the uh the scene where he wants to go get his fire truck and mm-hmm. jack is just sitting in his bed like just up like this is a, a scary scene as a child you know just being like oh well my dad needs to go to sleep doesn't he um, and yet here he is just being like, Hey man, like, I just, uh, I just want to say that I've got some big stuff to do and we can't leave this hotel until I do it. And you just have to like live, listen to your parents kind of thing. But there mm-hmm. is, um, some father son dynamic for sure. I'm sure to some degree King was writing about his own family and himself. Right. Oh, for sure. That's, I mean, Maybe, if like, was, to talk about this a bit, it's like, it's not hard to understand why King doesn't like this movie. Like he made, right, no. he, he wrote this book based on his own issues involving family addiction and alcohol. And right. they have Cooper coming in here being like, yeah, that's whatever. I'm going to make my own movie. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I get why yeah, he'd be annoyed that a very personal story to him. That's one of his, you know, first books ever, let alone one of his, you know, one of his first bestsellers mm-hmm. uh, rejecting like all of that in favor of, Kubrick doing his own thing regardless of how good that is in his eyes I think King's even said is like I respect like to a level like yeah he's clearly an artist but it's just not my thing mm-hmm. I get yeah it's easy to understand like why would I like this like you took the you took sure. this very the, you took my heart and you can you split it on the ground <laughs> you discarded it they were always going to be at odds because King's version is rooted in emotion right yes, and Kubrick right. on the other hand is a very cerebral treats actors like props oh. like I mean he's not yeah. everybody's you know I, there's there's warm elements in this movie and his, in other movies but like there's still a lot of coldness that's not going to jive well with the sure the, the, the level of humanism that King tries to put in his, some of his novels, right. good or bad. Um, we talked about all the performances except Scatman Carruthers, and I just want to address him real quick because I really like Scatman Carruthers in this movie, and every time I watch it, I get very sad that we see this entire journey he takes to get back to the Overlook, and then it's immediately <laughs> <Right>. dispatched. <laughs> like, He's it, trying to do the right thing! <laughs> I actually really... Uh, 
I, I never picked up on it before because I was like, oh, why does he have to fly somewhere? And it's because he lives in a different state. Yeah. But I I dig that um when he when he talks to Duke uh on the phone and he's <laughs> yeah, like totally why are you here you know duke is like why are you duke, duke is not is his character's name from from rocky but i forget the actor's name tony burton tony burton but tony yeah. burton's like why are you here isn't it like aren't you guys close he's like there's some these 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 people are assholes i gotta go check in on it he yeah. like makes up this really yeah. credible lie turned out and i was like that's asshole. actually really nice of him to be like i have to go find this kid because i'm worried but you know i can't just tell everybody that i'm this guy's gonna kill his family so he's like, oh, they're just being terrible caretakers. I've got to go, you know, yeah. make sure that it's okay. So he actually has like this really interesting hero's journey, which Aaron, to your point, like just ends very abruptly. It's it, it, it's <laughs> effective because it's like, on the one hand, he is a magical Negro character, but at the other hand, yes. that's kind of the joke. And that's even before this became a trope to begin with. Like mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, there's one black character that knows all and is wise and what have you. And delivered. Like, that's clearly a trope. But at the same th- this is before that became like a commonplace term yeah, to yeah. even use. And it doesn't even really result in anything because he gets killed right away the second he's able to help again. I think if he's supposed to be clairvoyant but couldn't see that X-Wing coming, then it was just his day to die. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a good point. That's but the, go- point. the ghosts were blocking him. You know, they were, they were oh, their ghosts yeah, in, yeah. They were blocking oh, his, his, his spider sense. I will say much younger guy. In the book, it's like a big guy, like a like an, he looks like an NBA player. He also, oh, has less to, he also has a lot less to do in the book, right? There's this, well, he does the same thing, the drive up in the snow, in the snow cat, up the hill, and then he... I, he gets killed. He, but there's no. also like there's like no character. There's like no little. I think he survives. Little... I think he's. He does survive. He survives, yeah. but yeah, he get but he gets taken out of play really quickly. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think he's injured by the topiary animals that come to life. Is that what yeah. happens? Yeah, they yeah. slash at him. I will say the set deck of his apartment is maybe my most favorite thing in the. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, it's very funny. is so great. Uh, oh. Yeah. And I don't know why Kubrick is like slowly panning out too. You're like, this is actually a really cool reveal. But why? <laughs> because it's a cool thing. Really that's that's exactly. why he knows what he's doing. Oh, he's an older guy. He doesn't have a sexual anything. I mean, he's got the sexy poster on his wall. It just adds him. It's kind of a funny bit. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. He's down in Florida, whatever he is, during the summer, away from the snowy hell. And, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's that's pure cube. That's cubic sense of humor easily. Yeah, That's the evidence. watching right? the or football or whatever. And <laughs> get yeah, signals from the get up and. Kubrick can be incredibly arch. Yeah. Very, yes. Um, uh, as far as like other characters go, I mean, we talked about him, but you know, the bartender. Yeah, Joe um, Terrible, Zoid. And then I think the only person that I wrote down in my notes was uh the guy himself. Um, where where is it? Uh Delbert Grady. Oh, the, and the, the previous caretaker. The previous uh-huh. caretaker. What I what I wrote down in my notes here is like I actually really enjoyed that even though Jack is hallucinating. He still becomes incredibly cautious when he's like, you're Delbert Grady. Like, do you even know who you are? Kind of thing. I, 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 I right. dig that about it. Cause I was like, this is scary. Like this is a scary moment for, you know, Jack is just doing his thing, getting drunk at this weird party. But then all of a sudden he's like, he gets back to reality. He's like, uh, didn't you like kill your whole family? And What's so it, scary. Yeah. Uh-huh. What's so scary too is the idea that he's an alcoholic. There's no alcohol in that hotel but the ghost alcohol makes him drunk which is a terrifying sort of turn in that story 
Is there not alcohol in that hotel? There's none. There's none. They, they take it out. Yeah, they the, take it out. Right. Owner. Yeah. yeah. The managers for like, in, take insurance, it out for insurance reasons. Yeah. reasons. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. You're only yeah. the ghosts messing with them. It's not actual. I know. Alcohol. It's freaking nothing. Well, that's that. That's a good way to get to our next kind of topic here. Do you find the movie scary? Um, Yancy, do you do you find this movie scary? I find it very uh, unnerving every time I put it. You know, we talked about earlier how long it is and how we don't watch it every year. I always look forward to watching it because I know that it has, as with all Kubrick, it has a uniquely hypnotic spell. Because it's a horror movie, it's a little more, it's going to be in heavier rotation for everybody, basically, than Barry Lyndon. Even though Barry Lyndon is, I think, inarguably a greater movie, it's easier to just throw on The Shining. And it's, it is, it is... It is unnerving and uh, and and scary, yeah, for sure. Mike, do you find movies scary anymore? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's it's rare to to be genuinely scared, but I do appreciate because I, I agree with you because I I don't in general, but I do like I tr- I wind up in certain moods where I can like make myself want to feel scared, scared either. But I get that I would be scared if I was still yeah. able to be scared. But that exactly, yeah, yeah, I mean. It's hard to turn off the sort of appreciation for like the the how the jump scare and how the how the fear is being kind of sure. what yeah. constructed filmically instead of actually being scared by it, right. So no, I don't find it scary in that sense. But I mean, although in fairness, I think Shining is best viewed more as an art film, right, than than anything else. And you can tell. I feel like this film is generally disinterested in conventional jump scares. I mean, with, with the exception of the one with the axe. Um, yeah. The film mostly, I think, largely eschews the jump scare mechanics of setup delivery, setup delivery, mm-hmm. and so the the result is, I think, someone said it. It's 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 designed to be unnerving and spooky, not scary, right? Well, even nineteen eighty. I mean, are we that heavily into jump scares at that point? There's movies that have jump scares. I understand that, but I mean, Friday the Thirteenth came out. The same year. It's the same year, yeah. I mean, oh, that, wow. and, and that's where it increases, obviously. Yeah. But I would I would argue that. You know, you have your Halloweens and even Psycho has jump scares or Jaws. But I mean, it's I don't, I don't know if it's a that's the thing that horror is known for at that point. Right. Is that, is that a, well, yeah. I think Nichols we're kind of a, it's hard to sorry. Yeah, there's also a transitional thing, right? Because there's a right. sort of more artsy horror like, you know, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, that kind yeah. of thing that exemplifies the 70s. But then by 1980, we're transitioning into slasher films with Halloween yeah. and uh nightmare is just a few years away so so this is uh, there's an in-between yeah I, it's almost like this is like the last of the old guard right i mean we just talked about the Good decades yeah. right so it's like hey this is we're moving into the 80s now but it still has like that 70s kind of like weird uh i haven't like it's it's thrillerish but also like uh spooktacular <laughs> <laughs> and you, you have like the biggest people in the world in Hollywood making this as opposed to like, hey, it's a right. scrappy underdog movie with a new filmmaker. It's Jack yeah. Nicholson and Stanley Kubrick making yeah, a yeah. horror movie. And uh, there is some stabberific stuff in here for sure. But I think that it does delve into or stays more in like the 70s type stuff. As far as your question of like, is it a scary movie? Yeah, Abe, you're famously that, like always terrified of everything. So, I mean, that, I am. Yeah, I mean, I watched uh, I watched uh, Smile. Uh, smile last week and i was just like you know looking through my hands sometimes but hey you know that's just me i i haven't been so accustomed to the horror movies as, as you three have been but i do think that there are some good scares in here but i think that there is like a more of like a a, a tension and a thriller aspect i still categorize this as a horror movie for sure 
but I think that there's really, really good stuff. I mean, I mentioned like the Danny just being in the hallway, but in large part, we're going to get to some of the technical things here. The music plays a huge factor in why scenes really are just like ratcheted up, you know, like I don't necessarily uh, think that just Danny, you know, driving down hallways is spooky, but there's a lot of really cool stuff that happens in tandem with what you're seeing, you know, behind the camera that really helps ratchet up your sense of suspense um, when he's just, you know, hanging out. It's funny. Like I, I would, yes, I like, this is a scary movie as far as if I'm going to tell you what scary movies are scary, I would file this under that. Do I necessarily get scared watching this? Again, I got to be in a certain place in the same way where like the evil dead is like hilarious, but it's also, if you're watching it in the right mood, the first one's a scary movie. Like it has the elements to make it a horror, like a a horror Mm -hmm. film that actually terrifies you. Uh, This movie it, it is very much that haunting element of the music and everything just kind of like you said, Yancey kind of getting it's, it's hypnotizing in its own way. Mm-hmm. But I, I will point out like the, the, the greedy girls and the damn, yeah. Dog costume guy on suit yeah. in bed thing. <laughs> it's such a, like, especially when I'm younger, I'm like, I don't know what this is, but then it has that, like that <laughs> yeah. dolly zoom, like right up on you. It's like, what the fuck? Like, it just, yeah, it, that, yeah. that's the thing that's like, it sticks out to me as far as if I was going to make like a list of scariest scenes and movies, those two things would be on there just by nature of I'm observing this and can tell you that that is, that, that seems like objectively scary, regardless uh-huh. of like how I feel about it when I see it now, it just, it, there's such like a, a differentness to it when I look at it, where it's like, dog suit man camera zooms i don't know what to do interesting with this. on the dog suit man it's like because kubrick knows it too what he did it's like he didn't put that in there not to scare you it's like what is this yeah know. it is very like what the fuck yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, can i i think i mean my relationship to this film is changing over the years um mm-hmm. I, as i uh, I, I think with yancy as well though yours you're you're gaining an appreciation for it mine has been kind of leveled but one thing I do appreciate as I as I rewatch it and as I get older is looking at this as so you know when I was a kid watching this the scary bits are what scare me right the axe murder and the the furry fellatio whatever that's about all the right. most un, uh, the, the unnerving bits are what scares me but as I get older and I I think about this more thematically instead of viscerally um I feel like the themes of substance abuse and the effects it has on families are really what's the 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 true core of the horror here sure right? there, there's existential the horror terror horror. going on yeah. yeah so i feel like in a weird way the film doesn't need the ghost story element to be scary i almost prefer it wasn't uh i almost prefer if the hotel wasn't haunted because then it becomes more acutely about jack's inner demons bubbling to the surface rather than being prodded by some kind of external antagonist whose nature is always elusive to us yeah that's a fair point yeah for sure not, not to you know uh, not no no to, yeah. uh, uh, and reinvent the movie and play a better one in my head we should be critiquing the one we saw but i mean i, I get and i mean i think kings even explored that in other works right like it's like 14 yeah, i, say, like, I think we've like seen a, other elements of this too like in other movies for sure yeah i mean yeah we and we so we've certainly seen like it was all in his head the whole time movie endings <laughs> or that. but I, but I, and I but i do think like king is specifically like revit i mean you write like a hundred novels, you're going to revisit some ideas every now and then. I imagine, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, which which is the one with uh, which is the one with children with latent psychic powers again? <laughs> um, I think it's only in one of his. It's books, It's the right? village of the corn and the damned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, what was I just going to say? Uh, oh, the, like 
in terms of like the way Kubrick embraces horror, like scare factor, I that whole sequence when she's reading the typewriter, um, mm-hmm. with all work and no play, beyond the like Herculean task it took, like I believe Kubrick's assistant to write or to type right. out that over and over again for like 500 pages in different formats, no less, to make it like very. I there's a way you could have played that scene that I think would have just destroyed audiences if like she's reading like you're focused on her looking at this paper and Jack like pops over her shoulder and says what's up yeah no thanks the fact the fact that he (laughs) chooses to move the camera away and give her give him plenty of time so he can only scare Wendy instead of the audience that's such a (laughs) that's such a deliberate choice to be made because I I feel like Kubrick knew he had everybody in the pocket right then if he wanted to he could have just slayed the entire audience so i mean yes in terms of like what you guys are speaking of as far as the threat and the danger and the scares that come from just the nature of the story being told and the characters what they're observing very much in play because it's he's kubrick's not a gimmick filmmaker right he's not going to do that he's not his need to need to do that to accomplish his goals here yeah i mean you move in can we talk about the direction real quick or move into the direction yeah let's talk about kubrick's yeah what you mentioned that scene there what i really dig about that scene is just the way that it's set up and shot you know because she's looking at it so you're looking at her point of view and then it shifts into the back of the the back of the typewriter and the paper Mm -hmm. and her head comes up into frame like from the bottom of the screen i was like this is actually really i I had forgotten all about it (laughs) yeah and i was like this is actually really effective because it just shows how scared she is of approaching it even more because now all of a sudden, like we're seeing the terror on her face instead of being like, well, she's slowly walking to the typewriter. Um, and then as she's shifting through, you know, it, it cuts in with uh, her hands going through all the paperwork. And to your point, you know, I really dig that the camera movement, um, it, it pans out a little bit and then you see Jack come in and she gets scared. And then like, she lets out that really loud yelp. And like that's really that's really good. Like good job on setting up the tension in the scene because I had forgotten about it, so I was waiting. It's like where does he show up again? You know, does mm-hmm. he show up in the railing or does he like come up right behind her? And yeah, it's, it's a pretty degree, casual. Just it arrives in the room. Like he's very casual. To, he's not yeah. trying necessarily to scare her, which is like, I no. Like, I, it, like let's let's talk let's talk more about the camera work or what have you because there's plenty to do. Yeah, but please. real quick, the idea of that scene is just insane to me because it's like. At this point, they're in the house for what, like a few months, maybe at this point. They're not at that long, yeah. but they're like it's been a it's been a couple months, maybe. It's been at least like a couple of months. Because this is like the last day at this point when that happens. And it's like he's been typing and typing away. And so the idea of thinking of her looking at this being like, I know my husband has been working every day on this book. What has he been doing? And she's seeing, you know, an entire ream of paper that is all <laughs> this. Like that is a terrifying thing to think about. That my husband's just been he's so like out of it that he's just either inadvertently or deliberately typed just this phrase over and over again in different formats. Like that's, that's yeah, that's nuts. That's nuts for a wife to look at that and discover this kind of thing. You know, it's crazy. He probably could have sold that and made like a million bucks. He's like, I wrote, I wrote the next great novel. What's yeah. It's also, I mean, that's the scene that, that's a pivot point in the film, right? It's yeah. uh, Jack is full villain from that full, point right? on. And up, yeah. Up, yeah. yeah, up until this point, we're like, well, what's really going on in the hotel? Uh, it's not clear. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And that's the moment. That's the, that's the, what the fuck moment of the movie. Right. Mm-hmm, and it's essentially right. um, entire, it, it needs to succeed based on aligning our revelation or our realization rather with the revelation of what's happening. And so we need to be perfectly in sync with Wendy's perspective. And I think yeah. as, as Abe 
um, astutely kind of broke it down, like the camera work and the, the choice of editing really puts us in her perspective and lines us up with her her fear, right? And so that's that's a great scene. And in terms of sort of delivering to audiences the kind of affect that uh, that sets up the last act of the film. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the look of this movie, um, it's obviously very Kubrick as far as the the framing of the film. Everything's very centered, um, which is great. Yeah, the for symmetry. The, yeah, the symmetry, which is great for video formats or what have you, because any <laughs> if you show it on a you know a standard TV of the time or you know in a, on a full widescreen frame, it's going to look great because he's framed yeah. it that way. <laughs> like that's that's very very good thinking on his part. Um, but also, there's a heavy use of Steadicam in this movie. Which is yeah. like a, which is pretty new at the time. Like it's only been used like a few times maybe before this, but this, this for a production of this size from a major studio, very much a huge factor in this film. And I love the steady cam shots in this movie. I am such a yeah. fan of seeing Danny roll around uh, through the hotel um, in ways it that kinda, it kind of makes you wish. Kind of makes you wish they would just keep going and going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's just there's something so like intoxicating about the way he lets this camera just kind of push through this, this, this place, this mystery spot. Um, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I really dig this here. Steadicam usage as well. And what I really dig about it is that it, it, it almost opens up like my mind to invite it to be like another person in that room, like a ghostly kind of presence in that room. Sure. So it actually like the, the scene. Yeah. We, we love the Danny scene too. But there's like the scene where Jackie's like screaming or something like that and Shelly Duvall's in the kitchen and the camera kind of just like pulls out a little bit away from her and then she has to like come to, to approach it. It's like it's spooky to think that somebody like I'm a specter just watching her because I'm haunting her husband and here I am just like waiting for her to go check him out. Um, and it really just adds a lot to an already like tense moment. But again, factor in like the direction factor in the uh, the score factor in like cinematography and then you just like also i've got the steady cam so that you're you're not really sure what you're uh you might expect because i really dig that um because it is set up on danny's tri tricycle uh mm -hmm. in the back like you don't know what's around the corner so there's like this effective um storytelling element to it as well that's why the girls appearing in the hallways works for me <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you, you, and because you have that droning sound of the rolling thing on the you know on the on the wood fantastic sound design it, it is great sound. It, it's very fixed so when it comes abruptly stop because like oh yeah there's two like dead girls hanging out like oh like what are we yeah. getting into here right there's some craftier moments too with that with the steady cam like there's a scene where wendy is like going upstairs and she goes up like three flights of stairs and this can't, you know, the camera doesn't cut. So you're just you're like watching this, like you have to think about this person holding this rig, like making this whole scene work. Mm -hmm. And then you think about the fact that they probably shot this a hundred times and they're going up three flights of stairs. That's basically going up the Empire State Building. Guys. Like, that's a lot. That's a lot. Of, <laughs> that's a lot of going up and down. <laughs> Great cab workouts in this on this film. Oh, I'm sure his <laughs> cabs are really tight. <laughs> One thing. Um that I always like, and, and this is kind of a marriage between camera work and, and the art direction, is that I feel like I always felt that this film does a nice job of, and I assume it's deliberate, which is to keep us disoriented with regard to the oh, very spatial so. logic, yeah. right? The spatial logic of the hotel is never quite clear. And, and I think the effect is that this is a space that's really easy to get lost in, right? It's, it's always unfamiliar. It's always unpredictable. I mean, and that, there's, there's a, there's a there's literal a... hedge maze in the back of the hotel. <laughs> so yeah, it very much wants <laughs> well, yeah, to throw you so, off. So, so those mirror each other. But also, I mean, the title cards are all over the place. 
right? It's not clear how long they've been there because it says one month later and then it's like Monday, Tuesday, yeah, exactly. 8 a.m. Which I love. That's, yeah. that's such a funny thing every time I watch this movie where I'm like, it's deliberately trying to fuck with you with that. Like, right, right. So, yeah. so there's no discernible logic in time or space mm-hmm. in terms of uh, what these sort of time cues represent. What, or like, why do they represent important chapter breaks in the film? We don't know. You actually bring up a really great point about um, the title cards one. I wrote them down too. It was like, it actually gets more specific in terms of like months, days, and then uh, times. Time of day. But yeah. But um, you, what were you just talking about? Um, you were just talking about. The maze, uh, uh, the, the, oh, the, the, uh, the, 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 yeah, the disorienting. What I dig about that is that uh, they give you a tour. <laughs> like the guy gives yeah. you a tour <laughs> of the, of the hotel. And you have seen the elevator so many times. And yet I agree with you guys that I'm still not sure like where I am whenever somebody is like in one specific spot of like the hotel. I'm just like, I know where I know that we're in the hotel, but I don't know like where like it's it's actually really like a, it's an it's it's the anti James Wan, but it still works, uh, which is like a really credit to the way that they're just uh, trying to, to make you feel like you're also lost in this hotel. That That's like gigantic, but not so gigantic so i, I don't cool. know where they're staying <laughs> that's that's the thing yeah, that i don't me. know what i never they're know on. i don't know where yeah. they're actually living in the hotel yeah same yeah not 237 yeah, apparently that's the one thing i know for sure they're not yeah interesting thing film students should study because you know to to as a case study and how much precision and symmetry and control it takes to make something seem so chaotic and and mm-hmm. disorienting right i mean not just in terms of camera work and things but also right down to the the kind of endless symmetry of that awesome carpet. Yep. That carpet is yeah. iconic. And just the the, yeah. the the endless droning of it, that kind of thing is, is simultaneously really kind of off-putting while also being right. very controlled and same and, and familiar. Yeah. Yancy, anything you want to speak to in regards to what Kubrick's doing from a directorial standpoint? It's, you know, it, it's very, it's all very mysterious to me how his films work. And mm-hmm. I kind of like that element of it. I don't, I don't, you know, we talked earlier about David Fincher, who also is wonderful, obviously, but David Fincher also likes to do a lot of takes. I'm wondering how well he was able to study Kubrick's method, because I don't think just doing a lot of takes would get you sure the strange feeling that right. you get in a Kubrick movie. I um, agree, because I, I don't look at his films like visually and even see Kubrick necessarily. I can see it in attitude to some degree or like a level of coldness but in terms of like how they just look like i wouldn't you know zodiac doesn't look like anything that kubrick's done like no kubrick kubrick is one of the few guys who for me convincingly has a god's eye perspective as a filmmaker terrence malick would be the other guy in america that i could that i could compare him to where i don't even like to question any of the choices they're making because i know that they are making them deliberately and i just don't understand them rather than trying to second guess whether this is an effect they were going for it didn't work i with those with kubrick i genuinely am humbled enough that i just sit back and watch and i don't i i i I, it's it's hard to explain Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's sort of anti anti a lot of um, breakdownable theory because I think he escapes from from that. I think he and uh, and a guy like Malik escape to a certain extent from being bra- understandable the way we understand other filmmakers. Sure, um, I guess is what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah, I it's can't. Like sorcery. It's like sorcery uh, more than it is like uh, craftsmanship. It, it's fun, like you say this, and I I I can agree with that. I, I, I there's so many you know books written about these people where it's like. What do they? I wonder what they, you know, what they actually lock in on as far as what defines these people in those kind of ways when it comes to this. When you have these mm-hmm. one of a kind filmmakers that you can't really replicate beyond just straight up copying them, like you can't you can't recreate their thought process to achieve what they've kind of achieved. So I, I I I wonder what the you know true scholars that have spent you know thousands of hours dissecting the work and putting it into words into novels what they've like come up with to to dig into that and on some kind of you know deeper level yeah and see would you uh, include david lynch in that list yes david lynch is is also someone who is singular sui generis yeah yes we generous there's just not I don't feel if I if it doesn't click for me, I don't think oh he made a mistake. I think I just don't understand this thing that he's deliberately doing. I don't I extend everyone that courtesy, but, but yeah, those, those guys I do. That's a good point. Before we get to the reception and stuff, Aaron, um, mm-hmm. my last tidbit about like the movie making of this great costume design. <laughs> like <laughs> these people have like Jack Nicholson at one point just wears like this this beautiful green turtleneck as he's watching his family out the garden. You know, Shelley Duvall is wearing like a, a yellow polka dot scarf at one point. Like it's so like these costumes are so good. We mentioned we mentioned Danny wearing like an Apollo Apollo Eleven sweater, but these are really yeah. good costumes. Like these really really like they look really nice. Like I I would buy some of this clothing. They're good seventies duds, which I think reflects the idea any, of them trying to be any generation. Of... <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it reflects I think this idea of them being you know like it all just. Regardless of how crazy Jack Nicholson might already be, but them still being, you know, an all-American family to very yeah. well. I, I I don't know about an Apollo Eleven sweater, but my uh, my Artemis sweater is like it, pending forever. <laughs> Nicholson's a little dumpy in this. Nicholson, he's not. They don't play him for sexiness. They don't. No, yeah, no, he's, he's, like he's, playing, he's playing a dad. Like he's, yeah. Like, yeah, he's, he's kind of a little dumpy. Yeah, his he last costume there he's, he's is play, like not great. He's, he's he's playing a guy who the best job option he has is taking his family away for months at a time so he can hang out in a hotel. Like that's yeah, he's he's dumpy. Which is also what he's playing in that scene you were talking about earlier, where he comes in and Danny comes in for whatever reason, and he has to yeah. encounter his dad. Dickelson is sort of playing it from the beginning as does this guy even want to have a family and a kids? Family. Does right, anybody? Right. Yeah, he's, he's, happen, yeah, he's, he's turned off. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> seems like it feels like it's a burden at times. Would he rather just be fantasizing somewhere, throwing a baseball against the wall, or getting drunk? Yeah. <laughs> is he getting paid for this gig, or he just gets free housing and free food? No, he's getting. That's I the whole point. Paid. He's getting paid. Yeah. Oh, he is getting paid. He's okay. got to support the family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just, I was curious. I was like, oh yeah, I guess I could live for six months. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a, 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 there. There is, there is, yeah, there is a compensation involved. It's just it. the okay. the the benefit for him is that yes, he does have the peace and quiet to write a novel. And sure, yeah. and yes, obviously, you know, the room board comes with the territory. But yeah, there there would be a substantial payout. So that's the idea. Got it. Okay. I, I'm curious if the overlook maybe changes that uh, that policy by, as far as how many. <laughs> caretakers we should have in the house at any given time but it is what it is um we can keep talking about the movie as we go along here but i would i do want to talk about how it was received at the time sure um so it comes out um but uh what memorial day weekend in may in 1980 um the the same weekend as empire strikes back 
um, <laughs> which which is always amusing to me. Never heard of it. <laughs> Tough. You know, um, like in two theaters, right? Somewhere. It was in oh. less than fifty screens. It was a. It was yeah. still. A, it was still like a quote unquote wide release. But even then, that's not. You know, yeah. they, it's not two thousand screens like it is today. It it was a wide not compared to star wars but it certainly was a wider release and at the time it had for a movie under 50 screens in theaters it had like the third biggest opening of all time or something like that so well the empire strikes back had a limited release too it wasn't out in a million theaters at first it was yeah they 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 rolled about differently back then yeah um Mm -hmm. but i mean you know for it was 19 million at the time uh it made 47 overall it's a decent hit you know it's that's not bad it's not bad it doubles in a movie like this it you know it's just it's not a runaway train success but it's still like it makes money um it, you know yeah it's a, it's it's a bigger success than than um than Barry Lyndon was um okay. but uh the reviews at the time mixed uh you know it wasn't mm. it wasn't they you know it's a new masterpiece from our you know everyone's favorite director uh I don't know if anyone even called him everyone's favorite director but certainly you know a person of no of noble status uh mm-hmm. but yeah mixed mixed reviews um did Eber that's like with it? all of his movies after oh, no, Eber, he liked it later Eber he liked it later, it later yeah. right yeah he didn't yeah. like it when it was first out and then he gave it four stars like in 2006 yeah, i know Siskel didn't like it at all every with i was really only cognizant for full metal jacket and eyes wide shut but i remember very much the initial reaction was always muted because it's a new kubrick we expect so much it's it was just even myself even when i walked out of eyes wide shut i was like i'm not sure what that was all about you know mm-hmm. but i'm not gonna pretend to make any kind of judgment on it yet. i'm gonna let it grow but yeah he always got underrated after initially after after 2001 i think yeah. right like hmm. okay it's a big event he takes five years to make it and you know yeah, yeah right i think here. that's partly the the curse of sort of the, the auteur right to be sui generis like we talked about because everyone assumes that the way the window into understanding shining is to understand kubrick mm-hmm. um but of course if kubrick is so eccentric or or kind of opaque then you, it, it kind of stymies your ability to appreciate the film as it, for other reasons as a, as a genre or as a set of performers or something like that and so the it's the, weird that, that applies in, to different filmmakers to though, right it that applies we don't know anything about kubrick he didn't want us to know anything about him and maybe that's maybe that's part of it when it comes to certain filmmakers because certain auteurs seem to get non-stop praise you know as far as whatever they're putting out they tend to you know it tends to win everyone over whereas someone like like a kubrick who yes is more privates yeah it becomes like a more of a mixed response to some degree like even terrence malick like thin red line and then later on you know new world and a tree of life that there's there's it's overwhelming praise to some degree but then like the ones right after those you know the the, what uh, Mm -hmm. to the wonder song to song night night of night of cups like it's they're like is yeah. this is this really our guy like there's these these, these questions about the ability and I, I do what yeah i do think that compared to someone like like yeah. andrew wes anderson or pta where like they seem to just constantly get praised like no matter what like there's not a there's no real because kubrick is, is, there. is presenting himself as a as a major intellectual and as you know as as making a monumental work of art even if he's just making a horror movie we've seen 2001 and dr strange love mm-hmm. we understand this guy is a titanic force so going you know when you're roger ebert you're going and see roger ebert who also thought very highly of himself just like kubrick did robert Ebert goes to see clockwork orange or or this and he, he's not impressed because he wants to see that 2001 again or whatever it is but 
I think the only movie Ebert liked after 2001, well, he loved Barry Lyndon, but was Eyes Wide Shut. He liked Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I mean, he didn't like Full Metal Jacket. He didn't like this. He and... famously didn't like Full Metal Jacket because that's a great episode of Siskel and Ebert. So <laughs> to me, it's, it's, it's unimaginable to come out of the theater after this and go, "Well, that was no good." I just feel like it obviously is begging to be understood more. Yeah, there's also um, the difference, Aaron, between like uh, auteurs who make themselves available for conversations about each film. Like Kubrick, as I understand, was kind of notoriously yeah. That's what we were saying. Yeah, as far as stuff. the kind of yeah. their yeah yeah. yeah. I yeah, no, I, I, mean, agree, like, I agree with you. I do think yeah that that plays a role. Yeah. Oh. And Cronenberg, like, for instance, is a really really uh, generous about like no, here's what I intended and here's what I did yeah. and. Yeah. There, are, there are correct ways to interpret this and incorrect ways as opposed to whatever you think. Right. And there's also just like the like like Spielberg's a populist filmmaker, right? I mean, so it's not it's right. it, there's there, there's little left to imagine because like he's making movies for everybody to some degree, or even like Scorsese to right. an extent is this yeah. kind of weird balance between art and commercial. That's uh, the real friction we're getting tonight talking about this movie. I think is that. I really do love Kubrick. And I also really, really am a big fan of Stephen King. I've always been a fan of Stephen King. And I think he's endlessly inventive. And, and I don't really buy the sort of modern dismissal of 90% of his work. But it's very clear to me that Stephen King is kind of like the artist who is sort of like your friend. You check in every year. He writes a forward at the beginning. He sounds he sounds very friendly. Stephen King never tries to put on any airs about being the master of horror guy. He talks like Bruce Springsteen. His characters <laughs> in his books are like Bruce Springsteen characters going through horror movie things. He's very, you don't read a Stephen King book and go, my God, this man is a genius and I could never in a million years do this. You think, well, this is the kind of thing if I put my life towards writing horror novels, maybe I would have been able to do this. Kubrick, on the other hand, for me, is that shift X crazy level genius who I can't comprehend and it's very different than Stephen King, who is much more of a warm, uh, you know, presence, and who I sort of you sort of track Stephen King through his books, three three books a year, if you want to, you know, right. And it's a very different substance that makes them that makes their art. To then have them both work on the same for King for Kubrick to adapt the King book is very interesting, you know, because they are polar opposites in that way. I'm trying to think of other like successful ventures that involve oil and water type creatives. And I, I honestly, I mean, I kind of think of AI where I don't think necessarily you can, I mean, you can see influences of Kubrick in Spielberg, but Spielberg, the, you know, the kind of thing he's delivering doesn't, doesn't necessarily line up with Kubrick in all instances where, but I like Anthony, I know but you're, that you, shows you're our misunderstanding. That shows, when we think, well, I don't understand how Kubrick, Kubrick seems so cold and Spielberg is so warm. Obviously that we must not understand what they were really like for, because they, if they were best buddies for all this time, then it's really just our perception of. Kubrick mm -hmm. is cold and Spielberg is warm and probably not spot on. Um, For sure. But that's, yeah. but it's hard to, it, you can certainly note that there's a distinct difference in something like AI compared to other Spielberg films. He's trying to, he's trying to honor Kubrick's vision. Yeah. For I think sure. he did a good job. I mean, it's a terrific movie too. Yeah. I think. Um, and also very unique in terms of, like you're saying, it, it's, it really is. Uh, it, it's, I, I think that the, the, the notable thing about AI that no one ever really comes out and says is that I think Kubrick really cast Spielberg as the director and knew that Spielberg could get a certain level of real neurotic childhood and uh, fear and anxiety that Kubrick wouldn't be able to summon. I really think that's what happened with that movie. I think it's very unique in the history of movies because they're both great filmmakers. You know, it, I I agree. It's because like I'm not as big on AI as you are, but I I can't not 
recognize what's going on that's you know coming from like clear level of talent and ability to like get certain things out of that i think Haley Joel Osment is pretty phenomenal in that movie it's, oh, it's, it's a very impressive performance but i would agree that spielberg is the one that would be able to get that i don't know if cooper could be able to get that kind of cooper wanted to use a robot for that of course he did of course yeah that's why he waited so long right because he was waiting yeah. for the technology to get to a point where uh, an actual <laughs> ai could perform it yeah, yeah I, I always i remember because ai kind of effectively has two endings right and uh, uh, it always says yeah well, well, so that's what people say. They say, okay, well, the the, the darker, more uh, moribund Kubrick ending uh, uh, comes and then fade out. And then the Spielberg ending, which is more sentimental and, and syrupy kind of emerges. And I, and I always kind of rejected that because I thought, no, no, I, I don't think it's yeah, quite no. that simple, right? The two are kind of in dialogue with each other. And uh, to date, yeah, I've never really had a I've never been inclined to really settle for easy answers with like, oh, the, these are the Spielberg contributions and this is the Kubrick's original uh, that bit that he retained because I feel like a real exhaustive sort of breakdown of which elements are Kubrick and which elements are more Spielberg infused hasn't really come out to, to my satisfaction. So I think that's, that, that's what makes that film so complex, right? I would say it's a futile effort to begin with in trying to like parse these things out. But, but with, with that in mind, I'd be happy to have a longer discussion about the relationship <laughs> between Spielberg and Kubrick, but we have to move that on and keep going on The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, I welcome this conversation at another time because I do think there's plenty of interesting things to explore as far as Spielberg and sci-fi and Kubrick and their relationships with these topics. Uh, but getting back to this movie, um, as we kind of go through wh where we stand with The Shining, uh, I will note as we kind of move into where it is now, uh, despite being you know a decent box office hit, as we said, mixed reviews um it was the rare kubrick film that got no love from awards branches it got no oscars mm. it had no golden globes it had no bafta nominations which was the first i believe for a while that he had no bafta nominations that was the thing that it's despite kubrick not being british keep that in mind it's like well. he's going to be loved by the <laughs> baftas um well, sure uh but yeah so it, it it got like we mentioned it had two razzie nominations which whatever what was the other um director Nicholson, right no director director oh really yeah. director. wow because because the razzies are really cool guys they know what they're talking about <laughs> the razzies what did they did they feel it was just over directed or uh, let me talk to razzies john razzy about just... that and get back to you i don't fucking care like that, that, no, just that is the popular thing to pick up on they're like oh uh the biggest hotshot director in town came out with a movie after five years what are we going to say about it well the woman sucks and the director's a joke like that's interesting that's, that's how the razzies roll yeah, they so, just put their finger in the air and decide who they, they think do. Like I, I, I legit don't, don't like think right the people now, that, go, that do the Razzies watch movies. I think they like, especially now, it's probably easier for them. They just like read the room for social media, and it's like, yeah, this is probably that. Whatever, let's nominate it. Uh, it's, well, it's, I've got a great idea for an award that we can give out now, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> um, so moving on to what would you call it? The is it the Aaron and Abies? <laughs> no, it'd probably be just like the Terribles. So, <laughs> the Out Nowies? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> so where are we now we with the with the shining yeah. we have looking at it, it's like like where it stands uh not what is it 42 years old now um it it has this place on various afi lists like i assume mm -hmm. it's with the, like the horror list or whatever the thrills like the, mm -hmm. the whatever mm -hmm. that list is called along with like the i think top films list they have sight and sound is noted a couple times plenty of filmmakers have noted it um as far as it, its impact on them obviously spielberg scorsese has talked about it a number of right. times I I would assume I could just probably name filmmakers and they've probably referenced the show various times in their life. Del Toro certainly has. I know that. Right. Um, 
but along with you know kind of the 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 reappraisal that's had over time the kind of the gain in 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 uh in in praise for what it is doing um it certainly had its effect on like pop culture um it we've we've mentioned the simpsons plenty of times already right. uh but it's, it's certainly you know it's it's it has a whole segment in one of the treehouse warrior episodes there um i believe pete doctor um the pixar director he's a he, like i think the shining's maybe his favorite movie because he incorporates the toy story carpet right it's the, the toy story carpet yeah, there's, there's lot, carpet there's lots of shining related stuff in in doctor's film specifically he tends to like you have like some easter eggs uh, noting the mm-hmm. noting the shining um uh, there, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, he's he's big on the shiny. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of course, the we talked about Spielberg, but Ready Player One has a very notable segment in the, the very the fun shiny. sequence. I, I really yeah. enjoy that sequence for that. Yeah. Um, and we can go on and on listing the things regarding pop culture references to The Shining. Um, but of course, there's also the big documentary, Room Two Thirty Seven. Um, mm-hmm. what's the? I don't have the filmmaker's name off yet. Um, but it's. We, we've oh, talked, but we've we've talked about this doc before, but it's essentially a a series of a, a collection of ideas and theories that have been formed around The Shining over the year, over the years, um, which you know it it's more I think it's more fun than knowledgeable because some of it's just based off of weird conjectures about what certain things right. mean or what have you. But you can, one can't deny that given the amount of time people have spent studying this film. There are a lot of takeaways that people have had as far as the shining is concerned, as far as what things represent, what shots mean certain things, and what have you. Mm-hmm. I haven't I seen the documentary, that's... but it, it came out like 2017, fairly recently. I think, right? I think earlier than I think that, smart. Oh, 2013, oh, I think it's yeah, it's like wow. it's Rodney Asher, Rodney Asher, Rodney Asher, Rodney Asher yeah. director, yeah, because he's on a he's time, a time for a Room 37 part two. Then <laughs> it's been a while, uh, but no, I, I, I. This is what I was talking about earlier. It's like I love that people have dissected this movie through and through and through to the point where there's like a full documentary about all yeah. the additional meanings. And I'm pretty certain that if we went on Reddit right now, there'd be like a fresh thread about something that somebody just watched that was just like, hey, did you guys pick up on this? It's like, this is fantastic. The life that it has had after the fact. And, you know, given that it had no love from any of the cool. um, the bodies that when it was uh, being um critiqued in 1980 fantastic you know get on get on this movie for surviving and becoming i mean beyond cult status it's like basically just like a masterpiece to some people right mm-hmm. it's worth saying that 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 uh i i like room 237 a lot not mm-hmm. i don't think any of the i think room 237 is a good example we understand kubrick that we understand that he was uh very you know what's the word deliberate and we understand that every back and every frame of every movie you can look you can look as deeply as you want into a kubrick film and you're looking at something that was designed to be looked at i think that movie takes that idea way too far into kind of silly areas but as a film it's very hypnotic i think it's very Mm. effective film and as a movie about the mystery of stanley kubrick i think it's very effective i do sort of always kind of feel sad that we live in a culture where because horror movies are more popular really than most other kinds of movies the shining is always going to be america's favorite stanley kubrick movie i noticed they're not making documentaries about all the stuff in the background of barry linden because barry linden is a quote-unquote boring costume drama it's a shame that the shining gets slightly more love than his other films because it is more accessible as a stephen king adaptation that's the only sort of slight bitterness i have over the shining is that it's not one of his greatest films the, 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 you can argue that the the source material just does not support 
a production like this. I don't agree. I think it's a great picture. I think I think it's mm -hmm. just its own it's its own extra thing apart from the book. Um, right. But it is interesting that you have it's one of the few cases where you have a book and a movie and they both stayed pretty much in the cultural eye. People still read that book and watch this movie and they're very different. Mm -hmm. If you're speaking at it from just like a pop culture perspective, I can certainly agree with that. I mean, it's it's like like 2001 is still being like a very popular thing in like a variety but that, of ways. The, the, the meme becomes that it's boring. Everyone says 2001 is boring and that becomes the meme and no one wants to watch it anymore. That's just how it works. I like, I like that it sells out whenever it comes back to theater in like a 4K presentation or 70 millimeter presentation. People There's seem enough to... movie lovers that are going to go see 2001, but in general, you know. I, I understand. Can I uh, mm -hmm. do a quick thing about the doc to room two through seven? Yeah. Yeah, because um, yeah, I do, I do uh agree that it's it's kind of the inevitable project that comes from a director like kubrick tying back to stuff we said earlier he's so precise and so particular that there's this this idea that he's planted coded meaning in every frame or that like every the detail must be deliberate he must be speaking to us but um i i have a slightly different take on the doc and you know aaron uh no aaron has seen it abe abe you haven't seen it right abe, yeah, it's it's great. You take a look, and maybe you'll keep this in mind. I feel like my understanding of the doc is that it's it's about The Shining, but it's not really about The Shining. It's actually a satire about the obsessive nature of fans. Mm -hmm. Oh, because yeah, I mean, it's it's quite funny. And so the theories being um, proposed about The Shining range from like somewhat plausible or or at the very least interesting to That's completely. Yeah, some of them are completely bonkers, right? Which is and why, which scene, yeah, I think the movie recognizes that as well. But yeah, because there's a moment, um, and I'm maybe misremembering a little bit, but it always stuck with me. There's a moment where you can hear a child in the background. So one of the interviewees, whose mm -hmm. voice you're hearing narrate, he interrupts himself to talk to his own kid. And the fact that the filmmakers oh. left it in there, it's it's clearly something that should have been cut or redone. But they're leaving it in there suggests to me that they're aware there's a sort of cheekiness in the film mm -hmm. that recognizes how silly it is that deflates its own seriousness or its its self-seriousness uh, around theories and rendering the whole enterprise is just really just regular people who've been thinking about The Shining way too long as opposed to legitimate steely-eyed intellectuals and experts who you'd expect in a, a traditional documentary. Yeah, that, so that, that, that's, that's something okay. funny about that film. That's yeah. a big that's aspect of thing about people. They don't understand if you're not really, and I don't know how, how to say it other than if you're not really into art and artists, then you don't understand what a guy like Kubrick is doing so obsessively, and you think it must be some kind of covering up the moon landing thing, but it's like, knowing what I know about Stanley Kubrick, he never would have gone in for that. I mean, covering up, it's, it's, it's such an, a weird way of understanding what these rarefied artists are doing, that they're actually sending these coded messages about the moon landing being fake, and it, it's, it's almost touching. Because <laughs> the, the government's not going to pay Stanley Kubrick to be a hundred takes of Neil Armstrong doing on the like, that's, 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 that's just a waste Peter of money. Hyams to do it. I mean, so he worked Neil so hard that Neil never did anything again, right? Yeah, Dude, I'm done. This guy's yeah. too much. Yeah. He's too much. Yeah, I'll just take all the glory of being the first man on the moon, but but I'm Buzz never going to make a picture again. Buzz though loved it every second. <laughs> he's such a he's, he's such a stand-up guy. <laughs> he would make a movie that he wants you to guess this. It's just like One, that's probably not what's going on in this man's mind. He's probably, sure. yeah. it's probably the movie's probably also somewhat express expressing Kubrick's own feelings about being a married artist. You know, he's got to share his life with with a wife and kids, and yeah. also wants to obsessively work on these 
movies for five years, you know? So I think that's where King and Kubrick both meet is it's about that class to a, to an extent. Mm-hmm. I just work. wanted to say um, one small step for Stan, <laughs> one giant leap for mankind. <laughs> That was well worth waiting. <laughs> well really done. Really well done, done sir. Um, that was worth the wait. So we talk you about the hired Douglas Trumbull to do it. You wouldn't hire Stanley Kubrick. Exactly. That's like, yeah. You know, <laughs> he'd keep quiet. He made a whole movie called Silent Running. You know, you wouldn't be worried about that. Talking about things. Uh, so the pop culture. Uh, Stephen, we've mentioned this already, but Stephen King uh, still hates this movie. <laughs> still, right, he has yeah. like when Doctor Sleep is coming out, it wasn't. He wasn't like walking back anything. He's like, no, I still don't like The Shining. <laughs> like, it's not, I don't feel better. He's never going to walk it back. You know yeah. that story about? about I don't want to go off of that. That story about King, King said that he got a phone call in the middle of the night from Kubrick. Middle of the night, two in the morning, the phone rings. It's Kubrick calling from England. Kubrick asks him if he believes in God. King says, "Yes, I do." Kubrick hangs up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, King, not a fan. Um, so, as mentioned in the 90s, uh, given the opportunity, he decided uh, he's going to have his way with The Shining. And so he has uh, Mick Garris, uh, who directed, what did he direct? Like the, the, the It? Did he direct It? Oh, that's Tommy Lee Wallace. That's Tommy Lee Wallace. Yeah. What, what, oh, Mick Garris Mick did other Garris, things. Sleepwalker. Sleep, and... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he he directs the TV miniseries version. It's a, it was a three night event on ABC mm-hmm. back in the day, uh, yeah. featuring Rebecca, Becca DeBorde and um, and Stephen Weber. And who's Danny? Is it the kid from the Santa Claus? I think <laughs> Bernard. No, not David Crumholtz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too Jewish. That's what they told him. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't work for us. Uh, <laughs> is it though? Let's see. No, it's not that kid. Uh, but Pat, but Pat Hingle's in it, and you have Melvin Melvin oh. Van Peebles as a as um, Dick Halloran. Um, All right. Okay, that's so that's fun. Um, well, we got yeah. to make a movie off that paycheck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, but uh, yeah, that miniseries exists. We don't. It has topiary <laughs> animals. Like, it, it, it has yeah. a lot of exaggerated. It has. I mean, it's not a Stanley Kubrick movie. It's an ABC miniseries. I recall when I watched because I was. I was big on the, sh- you know, I liked, the- I already seen The Shining at that point. I was big on The Shining. It's like, they made a miniseries? Cool. That sounds interesting. I remember, like, as a young child, it had its scares in it by nature of being a horror thing on TV. Uh, mm-hmm. But I've since seen, like, clips more recently. It's like, oh, man, this movie was ridiculous as far as the things they're doing <laughs> to kind of make the demon come out, very literally come out of Jack and uh, what have you. But, like, my mom, like, I watched it with, like, she was very aware. She she was a big Stephen King fan as well. She knew the book. So she she acknowledged that it was doing things that lined up with what the narrative of the of the original novel was doing. Mm-hmm. But it's still, like, a cheesy TV movie. <laughs> this. Yeah. That's kind uh, of how I thought about it when it was coming out on ABC as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so cutting into, like, more recent times, obviously we have the sequel um, uh, from director Mike Flanagan, Dr. Sleep, uh, which... Um, is based off Stephen King's book as well as very much incorporating the movie and kind of making a balance between the two. Uh, Abe and I, we've talked about that uh, mm-hmm. on, our, on our episode back in uh, 2019 when the movie actually came out. But Yancey and Mike, I, I'm curious where your thoughts are on Dr. Sleep. Yancey, what, what do you, are you a fan of, of the, of Dr. Sleep? I love Dr. Sleep. I was very surprised. I think that's one of my, one of the most disappointing failures for me the last few years is how poorly that movie did for considering I didn't even finish the book. I thought the movie was very effective, emotional, heavily emotional, 
powerful. This is the longer version I saw, the director's cut. Yeah, the three-hour cut, yeah. It's I, I, I think it's one of the... I suspect I've only seen it once or twice. I suspect it's in my heart of hearts, one of the better movies of its of its few years of its era. Certainly one of the better horror movies of the last 10, 15 years. It it it, it, it shouldn't work. Mike Flanagan should have been able to do a sequel to a Stanley Kubrick movie, but it I think it works magnificently and is very emotional. Like it really then I start feeling the connection between Jack and and his son and between Danny and then the young girl and 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 he starts to feel the emotion you know comes back to it and the whole thing starts to come in, into clarity i think honestly the shining means more to me now that dr sleep exists which i wouldn't have predicted mike were you a fan of dr sleep yeah i'll echo everything Nancy just said i mean i mean i i was always going to be biased in its favor because i'm a rebecca ferguson fan mm-hmm. i think i've mentioned it on the pod before but you i have. can't remember what what it was for was it dune no, you just randomly anyway. like saying it sometimes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you just, yeah. You just jump no, on the no, pot and you're like, by the way, Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah, yeah. I, I, no, I think she's just one of the great actor finds in recent memory. But that being said, like, it's a great um, companion piece to The Shining because mm-hmm. The Shining is about the disillusion and the, the, the breakdown of someone, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Dr. Sleep is about the redemption mm-hmm. um, around these themes of, of abuse and addiction and things like that, right? One is about succumbing to it and the other one is overcoming it. So um great double feature yeah yeah i don't need to reiterate all my thoughts dr sleep i i I will i will just say i am a fan of the movie i will just say Mm -hmm. i seem to feel like i feel like the only person that's not fooled by you mcgregor's american accent and this is the one time where i'm like oh actually (laughs) you did a pretty good job here so i I really appreciate that big big fish didn't do it for you that's a southern accent too. I, I, thought, I, I tell you, I, I feel I feel like a lot of people like to give him the benefit of the doubt for how his American accent works in various movies, and I'm always being like, "This guy's clearly English." Like, I'm Scottish. Yeah. Like, okay, what are we doing here? We're, it's shite being this, Scottish. We're pretending this, we're pretending this isn't a thing, and everyone's like, "But yeah, for record, but has um, uh, has Flanagan come out and said like, "Hey, just watch the director's cut." It's the director's cut. It's implied. Um, okay. I no, he actually I think he had like a note or something either attached to the Blu-ray or whatever. But he when it came out, he he was very supportive of Warner Brothers releasing the film, knowing that he would have a home release of the director's okay. cut. Like he's proud of both okay. versions of the. He doesn't dislike the the. It wasn't like a you know a studio hack job on his part. Yeah, he, did, yeah, yeah. he did what he could to make it because you know I I you know. You're, you're a director like Mike Flanagan making a movie. You're not just going to be given free reign to make a three-hour R-rated horror movie. You got to make concessions. So he, you know, mm-hmm. he made the movie as best he could to, to edit it down that way. But yeah. yes, he does. He is. He does prefer the director's cut because it's his complete vision of the movie. That's his vision. Yeah, and I've heard that it's it's better too. And everybody here just mentioned that it's mm-hmm. more complete. Yeah. King must have liked it too, probably right. Oh, King was a big fan. Yeah, King's oh, very, King. Oh, that's was good. Very, he like given that it has to contend with being. You know, both the movie and the book i mm-hmm. from what i can what i recall he he was very positive on what mike flanagan did probably because mike Flanagan just like was more collaborative with him i had to guess okay yeah, yeah because like the doctor sleep story like it's he's true to that to it in its own way and mm-hmm. and it's and he was probably like this is also the best you mcgregor american accent so. yeah that, that was very much <laughs> yeah. a part of it also he's very yeah much that was stephen king was like yeah let's do it he's yeah. always been very critical <laughs> he's also yeah he's also been like that scottish accent just creeps in too much for uh a lot of his movies it really takes me out of it. But I also imagine Doctor Sleep's probably not as personal a novel as The Shining was, so it's not like okay, fair. It's not like he had as much invested in the idea of this being done right, um, mm-hmm. especially coming after. 
I plenty of other Stephen King adaptations that have you know sucked. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, oh, this guy seems to get me. Like that's good <laughs> because he already worked. He already did a uh, Gerald's Game, which is terrific. Good. Um, yeah. So like good. he already has yeah. a he already had a working relationship with Flanagan in that regard. So right. And Flanagan's uh, going on to do some great things. Oh yeah, I mean he's he's a Netflix laurel doing whatever yeah. he wants to and being successful. He's got a new series coming out like next week or something. It's out now. It's the Midnight Club. Oh, it's out yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, I watched the first episode with Aaron and Abe. It, yeah. How was it? I I, re- I really like the first episode. It's more of a YA focus than his past couple mm-hmm. between Midnight Mass and the 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 haunting uh, seasons. Yeah, um, but I but I I dig where it's going so far, and it has the I'll say this: it has the it has the Guinness the first episode has the Guinness Book of Records for most jump scares. Wow. <laughs> okay. You, you got to see, I, I know why you got to watch this first episode. To well, you know, I'm going to watch it with, with uh, no sound on. So yeah, I'll check it, it out. <laughs> but it, it, it was a funny little thing to read given what happens in the first episode. Uh, okay. Regardless, cool. good for Mike Flanagan and yay for him. Cause I do like him as a filmmaker. I think he's very impressive with what he's done. Mm-hmm. He made, he made a Ouija sequel that was good. So, I mean, you have that going for you, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, with all of that, prequel. Mike, we've, we've t- prequel. So yeah, you're right. Sorry. It's the origin of evil, not the next stage of evil. <laughs> um we've talked plenty Get about together the new earth we've talked plenty it's late we've talked plenty <laughs> about the shining are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share in regards to this film uh yeah tiny window I, i'm i'm surprised that shelly vault even tried to like yeah attempt to go through it but you know hey good on her for for doing it um, all, all that snow that's outside when he slides down salt yeah all of it all that, yeah, yeah, that's all salt. Wow. Yeah. I mean, sheesh, talk about being dehydrated. I think um, uh, what's interesting that no one pointed out or I didn't point out or we should have pointed out was that I don't think it's in the book with the whole element uh, of of time happening again or of the past sort of being more present than the, 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 the past being more present than the present is. Mm-hmm. And Jack Nicholson ending up in that picture at the end. That's really creepy, effective stuff that I it think. It is, yeah. Kubrick brought to the movie that's you know it's not very well defined and it shouldn't be but this idea that somehow he's the caretaker who was always there is very right. creepy yeah the, the pronouncement of you've always been the caretaker is just a right. that's a yeah. there's a lot of lines in this movie that's an underrated one I think as far as really establishing what this thing's trying to say to you if you kind of distill it down to something that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty key part of it um, the other thing I didn't mention blood elevators aren't those crazy like, that was in the trailer. Yeah, it's crazy. I was just like, it was like, hey, by the way, go check out this horror movie. Here's some blood in the elevator. Who wouldn't be excited by like Stanley Kubrick's coming I'm back? Good. He's got a new movie. What's it about? Watch this. Elevator opens. Elevator. Blood spills <laughs> everywhere. What the fuck is this movie gonna be? The Shining coming soon. Stephen King. <laughs> was that all salt as well? Yeah, <laughs> they melted it down. They melted it down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Added some food coloring, corn syrup. Any <laughs> any final words from you, Mike, as far as The Shining goes? Are you asking if I've overlooked anything? Ha <laughs> <laughs> Good one. No, you know what? I don't have much uh, to add, except uh, I am wondering if you guys have seen something that was out about a month ago called The Timekeepers of Eternity? No. I have not. Do you know what this is? So it's an experimental film. It's about an hour long. Someone oh, took, this. yeah, okay, yeah, the uh, Langoliers, which is one of these really shitty adaptations. Oh god! Yeah. And they they like screen printed in black and white paper, like every frame of the movie, and then use the folds and tears in the paper to create this much shortened retelling of the of Langoliers. And it's 
I mean, it's impossible as a standalone project. You kind of have to know the Langoliers, but it's a super interesting thing. And I thought of it because uh, Yancy was mentioning the, how the film plays with time and like you've always been here and when's the right. present and does he get absorbed into the past? And so, you know, for someone to come along and, and uh, reimagine Langoliers and to call it the timekeepers of eternity, it does seem to key into these themes that uh, that Stephen mm -hmm. King is preoccupied with. Yeah, I'm not sure about its availability, but check it out. It's kind of an interesting um easter egg of a of a of a short film not short film experimental film mm -hmm. very cool 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 title too <clears throat> well as we can tell the shining is its influences carry on throughout the decades that it's been out since um regardless of where one stands on the shining it certainly has a place in film history um and with that said i'm very happy that we the four of us were able to talk about the shining in such a extent expansive way uh but with all that said let's wrap things up here um that's going to do for this uh this horror special you can find more of my work at my personal blog the code to come everything i do ends up over there i write for legal entertainment and wise the blue and i'm on twitter aaron's ps4 abe you can find more stuff over my instagram abe.mua and twitter.com slash walrus moose hashtag go check it out go check it out oh god you don't have to yell oh sorry uh yancy anything you'd like to plug uh, keep an eye on the Milky Way Blues, uh, Yancey Jack on Twitter, Yancey Burns on Facebook, and uh, hopefully future episodes of Aaron and Abe. Very cool. Mike, anything you'd like to plug? Nothing to plug, but just to say, on since I uh, roped you guys into this, on behalf of the university and my students, thank you guys for indulging and for uh, being a part of this. And Yancey, uh, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. This was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike, for uh, inviting us. Yeah. It's really kind. And uh, stay tuned in the, you know, maybe the months to come, there will be another one of these featuring, uh, oh, uh, featuring us and, and, and Mike Dillon as well. Um, you people are strange. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you can find all the other episodes about now. Aaron and Abe on iTunes, Audioboom, Spotify, Stitcher, all the places you can find podcasts. Yeah, we're on the internet. We're having a great Halloween uh, month here. October month for with spectacular episodes. So check those out too. For sure. Follow us on all the socials. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, feel free to uh, give us a rating review on iTunes. That'd be great. We do a lot of these fun bonus horror episodes. We'd like to think that uh, people are being entertained by them. So feel free to share that in the form of an iTunes review. That'd be wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, man. And that is going to do it for this special horror bonus for this week. Uh, next, the next horror bonus is going to be uh, a big focus on um, horror movie posters. Yeah, horror movie oh, posters. Cool. So keep that in mind. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. We've already talked. We've already formed. Um, Hero horror hero squads and our monster squads those are previous episodes. Uh, movie posters is horror movie posters next, and then we're concluding the month with our commentary for Nosferatu in honor of its 100th anniversary. So stay tuned for all of that. Uh, a lot of cool stuff coming on the way. Thank you again, Yancy and Mike, for joining us. Thank you, Yancy. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure. Thank, Thank you, guys. You. This was great. Thank you, both, Mike, all you. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this episode. So until next time, so long. And the hotel is closed. <laughs>
found a shortcut through Hedge Maze. Get away, you little! No, no, go easy on the wee one. His father's gonna go crazy and chop them all into Haggis. What's Haggis? <gasps> Boy, you read my thoughts. You've got the shining. You mean shining. Shh, you wanna get sued? Now look, boy, if your dad goes gaga, you just use that shin of yours to call me and I'll come a-running. But don't be reading my mind between four and five. That's Willie's time. <laughs>